Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. It was the largest army Rome had ever put into the field. 40,000 Roman citizen legionaries, 40,000 Italian allies, and 6,000 cavalry. As its endless columns marched along the dusty, parched roads of southern Italy, onlookers could be forgiven for believing that the army was invincible. Its commanders, the consuls Aemilius Paulus and Terentius Varro, had orders from the Senate of Rome to fight a decisive battle. Waiting for the Romans near the hill town of Cannae was the Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca and his army of 50,000 African, Spanish, and Gallic veterans. Just two years before, Hannibal had crossed the Alps and fallen upon Italy like a thunderbolt. He had won two great victories that had shaken Rome to its foundations. Now, just like the consuls, he was seeking a final showdown. The two armies clashed at Cannae on August 2nd. 216 BCE. At the end of the day, the Roman army was completely wiped out. 50,000 Romans and Italians had been butchered, another 12,000 taken prisoner. For Hannibal, Cannae was his greatest victory. It was a tactical masterpiece that has been studied by soldiers and scholars ever since. It is also a byword for slaughter, for the total annihilation of an army. Cannae brought the Carthaginian general to the brink of final triumph over Rome. For the Roman Republic, Cannae was the greatest catastrophe in its history. When news of the battle reached Rome itself, wails of lamentation rose into the air. Mingled among them was a panicked cry, Hannibal ad portas, Hannibal is at the gates. Cannae is the most famous battle of the Punic Wars, three titanic, life-or-death conflicts that pitted Rome against Carthage. When the wars began in 264 BCE, Carthage was one of the great powers of the Mediterranean world. From its matchless position on the coast of present-day Tunisia, it dominated commerce in the western Mediterranean basin. Its navy ruled the waves from the Straits of Sicily to the Pillars of Hercules. Carthage also controlled a considerable land empire that included much of North Africa, Sicily, and Sardinia. Rome was a fast-rising star, dynamic, vigorous, and ambitious. It had just recently imposed its dominion over most of Italy. Its legions had already exhibited the fighting prowess and tenacity that would make them the most formidable fighting force of the ancient world. The First Punic War lasted until 241 BCE and was fought mainly on Sicily and its surrounding waters. It ended unexpectedly with a Roman victory. The Second Punic War, which ranged from 218 to 201 BCE, was one of the most gargantuan of all ancient conflicts. During it, fighting raged across Spain, southern France, the Balkans, Italy, Sicily, and North Africa. This war had no precedent in terms of the scale of forces mobilized, resources committed, and losses suffered by the Carthaginians and Romans. It will forever be associated with Hannibal, one of history's greatest military geniuses. Yet for all his brilliance, the Second Punic War ended in another Roman victory. 
Carthage was then reduced to a minor power, while Rome was launched into its long career of empire. The Third Punic War saw Carthage's final destruction in 146 BCE. By the beginning of the 3rd century BCE, Rome and Carthage were the two most powerful states in the Western Mediterranean. Too many modern accounts of the Punic Wars have stereotyped them as diametric opposites. Carthage was supposedly a money-making enterprise controlled by wealthy, cunning merchants, while Rome was a community of farmers ruled by tough, honorable, pious, proudly unsophisticated nobles. In reality, Rome and Carthage had much in common. Both originated as city-states, before expanding into major powers controlling immense territories. Both had similar forms of government. They were republics where authority and formal power were vested in magistrates, who were elected by citizen assemblies and advised by councils of elders. Both were in practice dominated by small elites consisting of powerful and wealthy aristocratic families. Any discussion of Carthage has to confront a fundamental problem. The Punic Wars offer one of the earliest and best examples of history being written by the winners. The destruction of the city by the Romans in 146 BCE was so total that nearly no Carthaginian records survive. The Carthaginian voice has therefore been almost completely silenced. What little information is left about Carthage is almost entirely found in Greek and Roman sources, which are highly critical, if not openly hostile. These sources have to be handled with enormous care, taking into account their many biases, both overt and subtle. Even so, any conclusions we can draw about Carthage and the Carthaginians must necessarily be provisional and partial. According to legend, Carthage was founded in 814 BCE by Princess Elisa of Tyre. Elisa was later immortalized as Dido by the greatest of all Roman poets, Virgil, in his masterpiece, The Aeneid. So much for mythical origins. What we can say with certainty is that Carthage was settled sometime in the last third of the 9th century BCE as a colony of the powerful Phoenician city-state of Tyre. The Phoenicians, called Punici in Latin, from which we derive Punic, were from the coast of present-day Lebanon and were the greatest seafaring people of the ancient Mediterranean world. The foundation of Carthage was part of a tremendous burst of maritime expansion that saw the Phoenicians establish colonies as far away as Spain and chart sea routes out into the Atlantic. Very quickly after its foundation, Carthage, or Carthadasht, new city in the Punic language, became by far the most successful of all the Phoenician colonies. Its location was ideal for trans-Mediterranean trade. It possessed the finest harbor on the North African coast, and it had access to an extensive hinterland. Carthage was located on an arrow-shaped peninsula that jutted eastward into what is now called the Gulf of Tunis. The peninsula measured nine kilometers from north to south. Most of it was given over to farms, orchards, vineyards, and the villas of the Carthaginian aristocracy. The city itself covered some 300 hectares at the southern end of the peninsula. Overlooking the city was a high hill called Birsa, on which were the citadel and the main temples. Carthage was otherwise dominated by its famous twin enclosed harbors. The teeming piers and docks of the rectangular merchant harbor welcomed cargo ships from all over the Mediterranean. 
The circular naval harbor was lined with covered slipways for warships, and an island at its center served as the headquarters for Carthage's admirals. The entire peninsula was encircled by massive walls. Triple walls closed off the isthmus connecting the peninsula to the mainland. These fortifications rendered Carthage impregnable to assault. One of our chief sources for Carthage's political system is the Greek philosopher Aristotle. In his Politics, Aristotle analyzes the constitution of Carthage, the only non-Greek state he treats. Carthage was originally a monarchy. At some point, the kings lost power and their functions were appropriated by a whole cadre of republican officials or magistrates. The chief magistrates were the two soufettes, who functioned as heads of state and were elected annually by the citizen assembly. They performed civil functions only. Military duties were in the hands of generals. In Punic, a general was called Arab Mahanet, or chief of the army. These generals were elected by the citizens for indefinite durations. Soufettes and generals alike were advised by a council of elders, a senate. Called the Adarim or Mighty Ones, this senate likely consisted of 300 members drawn from the wealthiest and most powerful citizens. The senators also formed the Court of 104, a tribunal which supervised Carthage's generals and admirals. It could condemn a commander, judge responsible for a defeat, to death by crucifixion. The leading historian of Carthage, Dexter Hoyos, argues persuasively that Carthaginian politics was an affair of powerful aristocratic families. These families competed fiercely with each other for possession of the offices of the state. Despite the importance of trade to Carthage's economy, none of the identifiable families were connected to commerce. Instead, they were all great landowners. Frequently, the leader of an aristocratic family would rise to a position of dominance. Such a leader would control the republic through a network of well-placed relatives, friends, allies, and clients. Leading men could even pass on their dominant positions to successors, effectively creating ruling dynasties. Hannibal Barca is just the last and best-known example of this phenomenon. The population of Carthage was diverse, but divided into a strict and highly unequal hierarchy. The descendants of the original settlers were the only full citizens. At the beginning of the Punic Wars, they numbered around 575,000, mostly living in and around the city itself. Next to the citizens and rights and status were the inhabitants of the other old Phoenician colonies of North Africa, such as Hippu Acra, Utica, and Hadrumetum. These so-called Libby Phoenicians shared the same laws as Carthaginian citizens and had rights to trade with Carthage. In return, they had to contribute to Carthage's military enterprises. By the 3rd century, Carthage controlled a sprawling hinterland that included much of modern-day Tunisia. Carthaginian-controlled North Africa was called Libya. Watered by the Bagradas, Siliana, and Mutul rivers, it was an extraordinarily fertile territory that the Carthaginians farmed systematically and scientifically. After Carthage's fall in 146 BCE, the Roman Senate ordered the farming encyclopedia of the Punic agronomist Mago translated into Latin. Moreover, until the end of the Roman Empire, Libya was one of the eternal city's breadbaskets. The Carthaginians ruthlessly subjugated and closely controlled the native North Africans, the Libyans. 
they were heavily taxed and required to supply troops to Carthage's armies. These exactions often provoked the Libyans to rise up and rebel against Carthage. Libby Phoenicians and Libyans together totaled some two million people. To the west of Libya were the lands of the Numidians, the native Berber peoples of North Africa. Some Numidian kingdoms were vassals or allies of Carthage. Others were enemies. The Numidians were famous horsemen. As we'll see, Numidian cavalry formed a formidable and famous part of Hannibal's army. Carthage also ruled extensive territories beyond North Africa. Sardinia was another traditional site of Phoenician colonization. These colonies and the coastal plains of the island came under Carthaginian domination by the start of the 5th century BCE. But the main Carthaginian overseas territory was Sicily. The western half of the island was a Carthaginian province, dubbed the Epicratea in Greek, and included major Punic settlements at Lilibium, Drapana, and Panormus. Eastern Sicily was Greek, and included such wealthy and powerful city-states as Akragas and Syracuse. Rivalry between the two peoples was constant. Before the collision with Rome, Carthage fought its greatest wars against the Sicilian Greeks. This Carthaginian empire had been created and was held together by force. Even today, Carthage is celebrated as a naval power. Service in the fleet was the main military obligation of Carthaginian citizens. Carthage could put 100 or even 200 warships to sea. By the beginning of the Punic Wars, these warships were kinkurems, the state-of-the-art battleships of Mediterranean naval warfare. The kinkurem was so-called because it had five rowers in each vertical bank of three oars, two rowers on the top oar, two on the middle, and one on the bottom. Much larger than the classical trireme, a kinkurem was crewed by some 300 rowers and 100 marines. Yet Carthage's naval prowess has been overestimated. As Dexter Hoyos points out, even before the First Punic War, the Carthaginian navy lost as many battles as it won. Furthermore, the navy was usually used to support the Carthaginian army by transporting troops or supporting sieges. The Carthaginians also adopted the Kinkurem only long after its invention by the navies of the Hellenistic kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. Carthage's Kinkurems first saw action against the Romans in the First Punic War. By contrast to the navy, the Carthaginian army's strength and size have tended to be overlooked. In the army, Carthaginian citizens served only as officers or in special units in direct defense of their city. Much of the rank and file were Libyan conscripts. In addition, Carthage's vast wealth allowed its generals to hire large numbers of mercenaries from across the Mediterranean. Numidians, Spaniards, Balearic Islanders, Gauls, Greeks, and Italians from Liguria, Samnium, and Brutium filled the Carthaginian ranks. Later, we will take a close look at the most famous Carthaginian army of them all, the superb force Hannibal took against Rome. By the time of the Punic Wars, Carthaginian culture was a dynamic mixture of Phoenician, Greek, Egyptian, and Numidian influences. The Carthaginian elites were steeped in Greek high culture and were in touch with the latest intellectual and cultural currents. The Romans and Greeks, however, always disparaged the Carthaginians as cunning and completely untrustworthy. Punic faith was a Latin byword for perfidy and treachery. 
This reputation for underhandedness was exaggerated, but another far more disturbing charge against the Carthaginians appears to be true, that they sacrificed their own children to their gods. Scholars of the ancient world long dismissed this charge as Greek and Roman propaganda against their enemies. In 2014, however, leading Punic archaeologists and historians from British, Italian, and Dutch universities published an article concluding that the overwhelming literary, epigraphic, and archaeological evidence indicates that the Carthaginians did practice child sacrifice. They ritually killed male and female infants at special sites called tofets. These offerings occurred infrequently, perhaps 25 times a year in Carthage, and were done to bring divine favor to the entire community. The existence of child sacrifice among the Carthaginians should remind us that we are dealing with people who are very different from us in some fundamental ways. As Josephine Quinn, one of the lead authors of the 2014 article, puts it, we like to think that we're quite close to the ancient world, that they were really just like us. The truth is, I'm afraid, that they really weren't. As Carthage was waxing in power and wealth, Rome was mastering the Italian peninsula. Rome had been founded in 753 BCE by the mythical twins Romulus and Remus. It was the largest city-state of Latium. It was the largest city-state of Latium, the region of central Italy inhabited by the Latin people. It enjoyed a strategic location at a key crossing of the Tiber River and close to important coastal salt flats. Like Carthage, Rome was originally a monarchy, and like the Carthaginians, the Romans disposed of their kings, in their case, in the year 509 BCE, and replaced them with a republic governed by elected magistrates. The most important and powerful of these magistrates were the two consuls who served as the republic's heads of state for a term of one year. Immediately below them were the praetors, judges who handled the most serious legal cases. By the time of the Second Punic War, the praetors numbered four. The Republic also had a plethora of minor magistrates, aediles, quaestors, censors, and tribunes. All of these magistrates were elected by the Roman citizens, who were organized and enrolled in a quite dizzying array of assemblies, each with its own specific powers and responsibilities. Unlike their Carthaginian counterparts, the highest-ranking Roman magistrates had both civilian and military functions. The power to command armies was called imperium. The principal possessors of Imperium were the two consuls, who were the Republic's chief generals, and commanded its most important armies. The only other magistrates invested with Imperium were the four praetors, who could command secondary armies. Possession of Imperium was visibly manifested by a retinue of lictors, special bodyguards who carried the fasces, an axe wrapped in a bundle of rods. Consuls had twelve lictors, praetors six. In 1921, Benito Mussolini adopted the Fascists for his new political party, which is how we get the terms fascist and fascism. The most powerful political body in the Republic was the Senate. It was a council of about 300 members appointed for life by the censors from ex-magistrates and leading citizens. Like the Carthaginian Adirim, the Roman Senate's principal official role was to give advice to the magistrates and the citizen assemblies. Its formal legal powers were limited, but its informal authority, what Romans called auctoritas, was vast. Unlike the annually elected consuls, the Senate was a permanent assembly with a continuous existence. 
it could therefore give consistency and continuity to the Republic's policies. The senators were the most experienced and most well-informed citizens in the state. They were also invariably the leading members of Rome's wealthiest and most eminent families. Therefore, the Senate's resolutions, the Senatus Consulta, while technically non-binding on magistrates, were, in effect, commands. Only an exceptionally confident or foolhardy magistrate would even contemplate disobeying them. During the conflicts against Carthage, the Senate was the mastermind of the Roman war effort. The greater majority of Roman citizens could not become or even aspire to become a magistrate. Magistrates were unpaid, which automatically excluded all but the wealthiest Romans from service in the government of the Republic. Yet even among the Roman elites, attaining the highest magisterial offices of consul and praetor usually only happened occasionally. By the 3rd century BCE, just 30 families still regularly reached high offices. Even so, most of these elite families, such as the ancient Julii, could only manage it from time to time. Only a handful of families, such as the Aemilii, Claudii, Cornelii, Fabii, Manlii, and Valerii, could expect to attain the senior magistracies in every generation. Therefore, just as in Carthage, the politics of the Roman Republic had become an affair of aristocratic dynasties. From its earliest days, the Roman Republic was expansionist. It first subdued the city-states of the Etruscans, a people who had once ruled over Rome. A milestone was reached in 338 BCE when Rome asserted its hegemony over all of the other Latin communities. For the next seven decades, the Republic expanded southwards. Rome's advance sparked three monumental wars against the Samnites, who dominated the hill country of south-central Italy. In these wars, Rome suffered setbacks, such as the Battle of the Caudine Forks in 321 BCE, when the Samnites encircled an entire Roman army and forced its surrender. But the Samnites were finally defeated by 290 BCE. The Romans moved next against the wealthy and powerful Greek city-states of southern Italy. In 272, the greatest of these city-states, Tarentum, fell. Then in 270 BCE, Regium, located on the toe of Italy at the shores of the Sicilian Straits, submitted to Rome. The Roman Republic now dominated the Italian peninsula, only the valley of the Po River in North Italy, home to powerful tribes of warlike Gauls, still escaped Roman control. Narrating the story of Roman expansion naturally begs an important question. What drove it? The answer, advanced by Theodore Mommsen, the greatest of all classicists, was that Roman expansion was essentially defensive in nature. Rome was the victim of aggressive neighbors and fought wars to protect itself. To put an end to their neighbors' threats, the Romans annexed them. In other words, Rome acquired an empire largely by accident. Momzen's thesis has been astonishingly durable. Only after the 1980s did Roman historians beginning with William Harris provide a different answer. Rome's expansion was rooted in the values of Roman society, particularly the aristocracy. Rome's aristocrats fiercely competed with each other for honor and social distinction. The highest form of social distinction was successful service in the highest offices of the Republic. In turn, successful service demanded fighting victorious wars that added to Rome's territory, increased its resources, and subjugated its enemies. Holders of imperium therefore actively pursued wars. 
But the Roman aristocracy was not alone in being warlike. The common Roman citizen who voted for the consuls and the praetors also wanted and expected war. As we'll see, these citizens formed the rank and file of the Republic's armies. Victory over their enemies means that these citizen soldiers were enriched by booty. When Tarentum fell to the Republic in 272 BCE, for example, the Romans thoroughly sacked the city and sold 30,000 of its inhabitants as slaves. The proceeds of this plunder profited aristocratic commanders and ordinary soldiers both. Far from fighting wars only to defend itself, Rome was an aggressive imperialist power. The Romans always fought until final victory. Not for them an honorable peace based on negotiated terms. They only ended wars when they had secured a thoroughly dominant position over their enemies. The Romans were not just aggressive imperialists, they were also superb imperialists. The Romans had a genius for absorbing and integrating conquered peoples. Virtually alone among ancient states and empires, the Romans were willing to grant citizenship to outsiders. In 343, Capua, perhaps the second city of Italy and the dominant community in the rich region of Campania, joined the Roman state for protection against the Samnites. The Capuans received the status of Civitas Sine Suffragio, or citizenship without the vote. They could move freely to Rome while accepting Roman direction of their foreign and military affairs. When the Romans reordered Latium in 338, when the Romans reordered Latium in 338, many Latin communities were given Roman citizenship. The rest became bound to Rome by alliances. These allies were permitted to govern themselves. In exchange, they accepted Roman control of their foreign relations and agreed to fight alongside Rome in its wars. The Romans came to forge similar alliances with all of their conquered foes. Thus, former enemies added to Rome's military strength. To bind its allies even closer to itself, Rome established numerous colonies of Roman and Latin settlers throughout Italy. The extension of Roman citizenship and the creation of an alliance system that eventually came to embrace all of Italy gave Rome a tremendous reservoir of military manpower. The Roman magistrates maintained a survey of the Republic's manpower called the Formula Togatorum. In 225 BCE, just seven years before the outbreak of the Second Punic War, the Formula Togatorum gave a total of men able to bear arms among Rome's citizens and allies at 700,000 infantry and 70,000 cavalry. Even if Rome was not yet a Mediterranean empire, it was already a military superpower. But the ultimate key to Rome's expansion was the toughness and fighting prowess of its celebrated legions. The Roman legions are the most famous fighting formations of the ancient world. They existed in one form or another throughout the Roman Republic and Empire. The longest-lived of all legions, Legio Quinta Macedonica, was raised by Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus, in 43 BCE. Its final action took place 680 years later in the defense of Byzantine Egypt against Muslim invaders in 637 CE. The legions underwent a process of constant evolution. The word legio, or legion, means levy, and the legion referred at first to the entire Roman citizenry under arms. But as Rome expanded and its military strength grew, the army of the Republic became split into two or more legions. Another key change that occurred during the early Republic was that the state came to financially support Roman citizen soldiers. 
Like the armies of Greek city-states, the army of the Roman Republic was a militia force, composed of amateur soldiers. As a condition of their citizenship, the Republic required all Roman males between the ages of 17 and 46 to fight in up to 16 campaigns. When called into service, citizens had to buy their own arms and equipment. This requirement meant that the poorest Romans were exempt from army service, except in dire emergencies. Originally, the citizen soldiers also served without pay. However, as the Republic became engaged in more wars that required longer campaigns, the citizen soldiers were taken away from their homes and livelihoods for increasingly prolonged periods. The government of the Republic therefore had to provide them with pay, which enabled them to support themselves and their families while they remained with the army. How the legion fought also underwent a critical shift. Under the influence of the Greeks, the Romans of the early Republic had fought as hoplites in a phalanx. Over time, the Romans broke up the phalanx into smaller units and distributed these units into distinct lines. Furthermore, the majority of troops in the legion ceased fighting as heavily armored, spear-armed hoplites. Instead, they became more lightly equipped, more mobile swordsmen. The ancient sources are largely silent about why and how this process occurred. Modern historians of Rome have advanced a number of hypotheses. One is that the new style legion was a tactical response to the Romans' encounter with the Samnites and Gauls fought as fast-moving, hard-hitting warrior bands. Another hypothesis is that as the Roman army increased in size, more and more citizen soldiers were unable to afford the expensive hoplite panoply. They opted for less costly gear, which then required changes in fighting methods. And yet a further hypothesis is that the phalanx, which, as we saw in our episode on Thermopylae, depended on collective solidarity and downplayed individual feats of prowess, fit awkwardly with the Roman cultural value of aggressive competition, which in turn required individual displays of bravery. The psychic and social needs of the legionaries therefore forced a change to a more dynamic style of combat. By the beginning of the 3rd century BCE, a Roman legion was a unit of 4,200 infantry and 300 cavalry. The combat power of a legion resided in its 3,000 heavy infantrymen. These infantrymen were organized into 30 subunits called maniples or handfuls. Each maniple was in turn divided into two centuries. The maniples were deployed in three lines. The frontline troops were called hastati or spearmen, and they consisted of younger men. They numbered 1,200 divided into 10 maniples of 120 each. The second line troops were called the principes, chiefs and they were men in their prime. Their numbers and organization were the same as the Hastati. The third-line troops were the Triarii, third-rankers. These were the oldest men, the veterans, and were just 600 strong and 10 maniples of 60. The Romans believed that the Triarii's greater experience and reliability compensated for their smaller numbers. The Hastati and Principes were identically equipped, for offensive arms, they carried two javelins and a sword. The javelins were the famous pilum. It had a barbed point mounted on a slim iron shank, which was itself attached to a stout wooden shaft. Its overall length was about two meters, and it weighed perhaps two kilograms. 
Hurled by a legionary to its maximum distance of about 28 meters, the pilum could punch through shields and armor to cause serious wounds. If it was blocked by an enemy shield, then one of the pilum's best-known characteristics came into play. Its barbed point lodged in the shield's face, its iron shank bent, and its heavy wooden shaft dragged down the shield, rendering it useless. The main weapon of the Hastatian Principes was the sword. By the Second Punic War, this was the Gladius Hispaniensis, the Spanish sword. Most likely adopted by the Romans from the fierce Celtic warriors of Iberia, the gladius had a blade about 65 centimeters long and 5 centimeters wide that tapered to a long point. It was primarily a thrusting weapon, but could also be used to slash and cut. It was capable of causing devastating injuries. The Roman historian Livy describes the reaction of Macedonian soldiers to the carnage caused by the gladius. But now they saw bodies mutilated by the Spanish sword, arms lopped off at the shoulder or heads separated from bodies, with the neck cut right through or entrails lying open, and other repulsive wounds, and there was general panic as they began to see what sort of weapon and what sort of men they had to fight. The gladius hispaniensis became the distinctive weapon of Roman legionaries during the remainder of the Republic and through the glory days of the Empire. The armament of the men of the legion's third line, the Triarii, had one notable difference. Instead of carrying the pilum, they retained the traditional thrusting spear that the Romans had wielded when they had fought in the phalanx. As we'll see, the most likely reason that spears were kept in the hands of these doughty veterans was to enhance the defensive staying power of the legion. For protection, all Roman legionaries depended principally on their shields, called the scutum in Latin. The legionary shield was oblong, with a curved surface. It measured about 75 centimeters, or 2.5 feet wide, and 125 centimeters, or 4 feet long. It was extremely heavy, weighing 10 kilograms, or 22 pounds. In the middle of its face, the shield had a round, protruding boss, or umbo, which a legionary could use to deflect thrusting spears or incoming missiles. The boss could also be employed as a supplementary weapon to smash and batter an enemy. In shape and size, the legionary's shield was strikingly different from the shield of the Greek hoplite. Greek writers dubbed the Roman shield the Therios because it so resembled a door, or thera in Greek. The length and narrowness of the Roman shield attested to its purpose whereas the Greek hoplite's large round shield was designed to guard not just its holder, but also a comrade standing close beside him in the phalanx, the legionary's shield was meant to offer comprehensive individual protection. In addition to the shield, all legionaries wore a helmet. During the Punic Wars, the standard Roman helmet was what is now called the Montefortino type, after the commune in central Italy, where archaeologists excavated numerous examples. Originally a Celtic design, the Montefortino helmet had an elegantly rounded conical shape, which gave excellent protection to the head, but it left its wearer's face largely uncovered. Rounding out the legionary's defensive gear was some form of body armor. By the Punic Wars, the Romans had adopted chain mail from the Celts, consisting of small iron or copper alloy rings linked together. Chain mail was time-consuming and therefore very expensive to make. Consequently, only the wealthiest citizen soldiers could afford a cuirass of chain mail, covering the torso and shoulders. 
The great majority of legionaries made do with a pectoral, a bronze square about 23 centimeters across that was worn over the chest. In addition to the heavy infantry, a Roman legion also had light infantry and cavalry. The light infantry were called Velites and numbered 1,200. The Velites were poorer citizens who could not afford full legionary gear or men who were too young to join the Hastati. They carried a small shield, wore a helmet, and were armed with a bundle of javelins that were lighter than the pilum. Many Velites wrapped animal skins, especially wolf pelts, around their helmets. These skins made their wearers look fiercer. They also might have allowed the legion's officers to identify particularly courageous and enterprising young fighters. A legion's fighting complement was completed by 300 cavalry. Because cavalrymen had to furnish and maintain their own horses, they were invariably members of the Roman aristocracy. For protection, cavalrymen wore a bronze helmet and a metal, mail, or linen cuirass, and carried a small round shield. In terms of weaponry, they were armed with a Spanish sword, thrusting spear, and light javelins. Roman cavalrymen were primarily close-order, close-combat fighters. Because they lacked stirrups, ancient historians once doubted that Roman horsemen could be very effective hand-to-hand combatants. This view, however, has been overturned by the work of the reconstructive archaeologist Peter Connolly on the Roman four-horned saddle. Adopted by the Romans from the Celts, who themselves seem to have taken it from the horse nomads of the Eurasian steppes, this saddle featured four leather-covered pommels on its corners. The two pommels, or horns, at the rear of the saddle acted as shock absorbers and prevented the rider from toppling backwards. The two horns at the front of the saddle curved over the rider's upper thighs, locking him into place. Anne Highland, who was both a classical scholar and an experienced equestrian, conducted experiments on horseback with a reconstructed four-horn saddle. She found that she could thrust with a sword or hurl a javelin with her full strength without becoming unbalanced and losing her seat. Historians now conclude that ancient Roman cavalry could be just as effective in hand-to-hand fighting as stirrup-equipped medieval and later shock cavalry. A Roman legion had an elaborate command structure. A heavy infantry maniple was officered by two centurions, one for each of its component centuries. The centurion of the right-hand century was the senior officer in charge of the maniple. Centurions were appointed or elected from amongst the ordinary soldiers. Each centurion was assisted by junior officers, including an optio, or second-in-command, who stood at the rear of the century, and a tessarius, or guard commander. The cavalry and velites had an equivalent set of officers. In overall command of the legion were six military tribunes. One pair of tribunes exercised authority over the legion at a time. However, all of the tribunes were available to help lead the troops in battle. The military tribunes were not professional soldiers. Instead, they were magistrates elected to their posts by the Roman citizen assembly. By modern standards, the tribunes were amateurs who possessed no formal training for command. They depended on the military experience they had gained in various junior capacities. When the Roman Republic embarked on a major war, it mobilized an army for each of the two consuls. A consular army consisted of two citizen legions supported by soldiers from the Italian allies. The allies were organized into two units called ally, or wings. These wings had the same number of infantry as the legions, 
but the most valuable contribution of the Allies was cavalry, which were up to three times more numerous than the Roman citizen horsemen. The Allies were commanded by three prefects. Otherwise, our sources give us very little information about the internal organization, equipment, and tactics of the Allied troops. They appear to have operated and fought in much the same way as the legions. If the military situation demanded it, the Romans could also deploy secondary armies in addition to the main consular forces. They were commanded by the praetors, the next senior magistrates after the consuls. In a pitched battle, a consular army was drawn up with the infantry of the two Roman legions in the center. An allied wing was stationed on either side of the legionaries. The Roman citizen cavalry from both legions were placed on the army's right flank and the allied horse on the left. The legionary heavy infantry were arranged in a distinctive formation that the Romans called the triplex acius. The maniples of Hastadi and Principes would be formed up as shallow rectangles, 20 men wide and 6 men deep. The triarii maniples would be in columns, 6 men wide and 10 deep. The 10 maniples of first-line Hastati were lined up with a gap separating each maniple. The 10 maniples of the second-line Principes were stationed to cover the gaps between the Hastati maniples. The ten third-line triarii maniples in turn covered the gaps of the principes. From above, the whole formation resembled a checkerboard. The battle began with the Velites skirmishing with the enemy. Unlike the heavy infantry, they did not form orderly lines, but were in loose order. I like to think of them as resembling a swarm of bees or a cloud of gnats. The Velites employed hit-and-run tactics. They rushed in, hurled their javelins, then ran away. Most often, the Velites' opponents were similar, lightly armed infantry. Ideally, the Velites would drive back these opponents, then harass the enemy's main forces, weakening them before the engagement with the legionary heavy infantry began. But such an outcome was exceedingly rare. In the vast majority of battles, the Velites and the enemy's skirmishers seemed to have neutralized each other. The Velites then withdrew through the gaps between the heavy infantry maniples. What happened to them next is unclear. The Velites seemed to have either shifted to the wings to support the cavalry or taken up a position behind the triarii. Whatever the case, they seemed to have played little further part in the battle. Out on the Roman army's flanks, the citizen and allied Italian cavalry tended to face the enemy army's horsemen. The main goal of the Romans and Italians was simply to keep their opposite numbers occupied, but if the Romans managed to defeat their foes, they often chased them right off the battlefield. Or, more rarely, the Romans could turn toward the center of the battlefield and attack the enemy infantry. The Roman and allied cavalry really came into their own after an opposing army was defeated. The horsemen would then relentlessly pursue and run down the retreating enemy. Artistic depictions from both the Republican and Imperial periods most frequently show Roman cavalrymen in the act of pursuit, mercilessly cutting down or even trampling the fleeing foe. For the Romans, the outcome of a battle came down to the legionary heavy infantry. They usually faced the enemy's own close order, close combat troops in the center of the battlefield. The Romans always preferred to take the offensive. At a command from the consul, the three lines of heavy infantry legionaries began moving forward at a deliberate, measured pace. To the watching enemy, the small gaps between the maniples would not have been visible at first so the Romans would have seemed like a walking wall of oval shields. Daylight shone off bronze helmets, shield bosses, the wicked iron heads of Pila. 
Many legionaries would affix horsehair plumes or bunches of feathers to the crowns of their helmets to make themselves look fierce and imposing. These headdresses would have bobbed as the men moved and waved and rippled in the slightest of breezes. From the legions would also have come waves of sound, for it was then the Roman custom to advance noisily. There would have been chanted battle cries, the drumming of javelin shafts against wooden shields, and the bright, blaring challenge of the cornu, the curved war horns that had played Romans into battle since the days when Rome was just a hilltop village on the banks of the muddy Tiber. As the legions drew closer to the enemy, the gaps between the maniples became visible. Thinking that the Romans would have been foolish to leave openings in their line through which opposing troops could penetrate, historians once developed elaborate theories to explain how the gaps were closed just before engagement. But our ancient sources never mention the gaps being closed, and it is now believed that the Romans fought in their open formation, relying on the rear ranks of the maniples and the presence of the second line to discourage enemy penetrations. When the Hastati reached javelin range of the enemy, they began hurling their pila and broke into a charge. What happened next has recently sparked argument and debate among ancient historians. Most historians, military theorists, and wargamers think the Hastati charged into the enemy with their swords, provoking a chaotic series of man-to-man duels along the whole battle line. This melee would continue until the Romans or the enemy were beaten and broke into panicked flight. But the ancient military historians Philip Sabin and Adrian Goldsworthy have argued that this dramatic image is more applicable to epic fantasies like Game of Thrones than to the realities of Roman battles. These battles, they point out, according to the ancient sources, often took an hour or even longer to resolve. Both the legionaries and their enemies could not have sustained hand-to-hand combat for more than a few minutes at a time. Legionary arms, particularly the shield, were extremely heavy, and fighting with them was physically exhausting. Even more importantly, hand-to-hand combat was an exceptionally brutal and terrifying experience that exacted a massive mental and emotional toll on participants. Furthermore, casualties in Roman battles were usually very lopsided. Half or even more of the losers were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner, versus about 5% of the victors. In a continuous melee, the victor's casualties would certainly have been heavier. Finally, during the fighting, the opposing lines often surged back and forth over considerable distances, sometimes hundreds of meters. This mobility would have been impossible if both sides were locked in a melee. Thanks to Sabin and Goldsworthy, we have a new model that I think more accurately captures the real face of Roman battle. If the enemy did not break en route immediately at the Romans' onrush, then most of the Hastati stopped short at a safe distance, just outside of weapons' reach of the enemy. Unable to summon up the courage and killer instinct to enter hand-to-hand combat, these legionaries instead focused on self-defense. They crouched behind their shields, launched insults, and threw any javelins they had left. But a few Hastati, bolder, more bloodthirsty natural fighters, would charge across the safe distance and into the enemy ranks. They would be followed by a few comrades who were emboldened by their example. This small knot of men would engage in a spasm of ferocious fighting, barging with their shield bosses, thrusting and cutting with their swords. If the Romans were defeated, the survivors would retreat back to their comrades, re-establishing the standoff. If the Romans won, they stepped into the places once occupied by their now dead or wounded foes. The enemy around them would back away, restoring the safe distance. 
The Stati behind the front ranks largely had a supporting role. They could not reach the enemy with their swords, nor could they push like hoplites on the front rankers to create forward momentum. The size, shape, and prominent boss of the Roman scutum meant it could not be easily rested and pressed into a comrade's back like the Greek hoplon. Instead, Hastati rear rankers tried to intimidate the enemy with their shouts and threats, encouraged the men in front, and dissuaded them from running away, and threw their javelins whenever they could spot a clear target. Above all, they had to be ready to step forward to replace a killed or wounded front ranker. So we have to envision a Roman battle as involving two long lines of men separated by just a few meters, screaming battle cries and insults, gesturing threateningly with their weapons, and throwing missiles. Here and there, again and again, small groups of legionaries or their enemies, either because these men had managed to successfully screw up their courage, or because they were just naturally bolder and fiercer than their comrades, launched themselves across the no-man's land, separating the two lines, and plunged into the opposing ranks to kill or be killed. If one side lost too many of these little encounters, then its whole line would retreat to re-establish a safe, standoff distance. The men would shuffle backwards, with their weapons pointed at their opponents to discourage pursuit. If these small withdrawals were repeated numerous times, then the line's retreat could cover many meters of ground. Yet despite the deadliness and ferocity of each spasm of hand-to-hand combat, casualties during this phase of the battle would still be relatively low. This phase of the battle could therefore be prolonged, even lasting hours. The situation would finally change when one side had its line irreparably breached, was attacked from an unexpected direction, suffered the loss of its commander, or simply accumulated too many casualties and too much fatigue to continue fighting. Panic would then sweep through the entire line. Its cohesion and order would collapse. The losers would turn their backs to their opponents and try to run away. Many would even throw away their shields and weapons to try to flee faster. The victors would surge forward as the majority of troops who had been mainly concerned with their own safety converted their anxieties and fears into bloodlust. They would chase after their enemies, cutting them down relentlessly and mercilessly. The trickle of casualties would now become a torrent. Archaeologists have found very few graves containing the remains of battle dead from the ancient world. Those that have been found, as well as the more numerous finds from the medieval period, testify to the gruesome fates of the men who were run down during the bloody climax of a battle based on hand-to-hand combat. They were brought down by wounds to the body or lower extremities, then finished off by blows to the head. The Romans developed a military system that gave them tremendous advantages in this kind of fighting. First, Romans placed great emphasis on virtus, aggression, and bravery. They rewarded successful performance of virtus with fama, renown, and reputation. Roman legionaries therefore had considerable social and cultural inducements to act boldly and courageously. But unchecked showy aggression could be counterproductive in battle, leading to the breakdown of the Roman army's coordination and cohesion. So the Romans balanced virtus with another key cultural value, disciplina, or discipline and control. When they enrolled in the army, Roman citizens agreed to subject themselves to ferocious discipline and to obey the orders of their officers. In battle, legionaries stuck to the ranks of their maniples at all costs. Individual legionaries thus had the scope for bursts of controlled and channeled aggression, knowing that their disciplined comrades literally had their backs. As the historian John Lendon aptly puts it, 
The true secret of the Manipular Legion was that it made the soldiers in it braver. The Romans derived further advantages from the many officers in the legion. The key combat officers were the 60 centurions. They earned their rank because of coolness and leadership ability, not individual prowess in fighting. Centurions encouraged their troops and marshaled and led charges into the enemy line. If the Romans faltered, the centurions and their seconds in command, the optios, held the legionaries in their places and dissuaded them from panicking. In addition to the centurions, the legion's military tribunes could also lead the troops on the fighting line. The four who were not commanding the legion could move along the line, encouraging the troops, directing local charges, and shoring up defenses at points of crisis. Yet the Romans' greatest advantage derived from their battle formation of multiple lines of troops, the triplex Achaeus. While the first line Hastati fought the enemy, the second line Principes were held back just beyond javelin range. From this position, they were able to prevent any attempts by enemy troops to work their way through the gaps between the Hastati maniples. More importantly, the Principes were ready to enter combat at an opportune moment. They could join the Hastati by filling the gaps between the frontline maniples, or the Principes could allow the Hastati to withdraw through the intervals in their own line, then take over fighting the enemy. The Principes would be physically and psychologically fresh, as well as at full strength. Moreover, they were the best troops in the Legion, men in their physical primes, many of whom would have had previous combat experience. It was the rare Roman enemy indeed who could survive two rounds of fighting against fresh legionaries. The third line of veterans, the Triarii, were also available to commit to battle, but their chief role was to serve as a final insurance policy in case of defeat. While the first two lines engaged the enemy, the Triarii were kept in a defensive posture, kneeling with their left legs extended and their shields resting on their shoulders. If both the Hastati and Principes were beaten, they withdrew through the gaps in the Triarii maniples. Then the Triarii would form a wall with their shields and spears and try to hold off the enemy. According to Livy, the Romans had an adage, ad triarios redise, or to come down to the Triarii, to describe a particularly difficult or desperate situation in everyday life. Fortunately for the Romans, on the battlefield things rarely came down to the Triarii. The Roman military system proved to be devastatingly effective. It was also elegantly, even brutally simple. As Adrian Goldsworthy aptly described, the Roman military system was directed to the single end of applying massive, steadily renewed pressure to the enemy in front. This simplicity was a virtue for Rome's commanding generals, the consuls. By the time of the First Punic War, because competition for the office was so keen, most Roman aristocrats could only become consul once. Therefore, they had just a single opportunity to lead a large army. With no formal military training and little experience of army command, most consuls could not conceive of, let alone carry out, intricate tactical maneuvers. The two-way frontal attack of the Manipular Legion provided a battle-winning formula that was also easy to execute. By 280 BCE, the Roman legions had bested all of their adversaries in Italy. That year, however, they faced a new threat from outside the Italian peninsula. To prevent its conquest by Rome, Tarentum, the wealthiest and most powerful Greek city-state in southern Italy, beseeched the help of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. Today straddling Albania and Greece, Epirus was an ancient Greek kingdom and a traditional rival of Macedonia. 
Pyrrhus was energetic, ambitious, and a talented commander. Hannibal was supposed to have ranked Pyrrhus as second in generalship only to Alexander the Great. The king of Epirus commanded a superb mercenary army, armed and organized along Macedonian lines. It featured heavy infantry, heavy cavalry, light-armed skirmishers, and, most famously, war elephants. Answering Tarentum's call for help, Pyrrhus crossed the Adriatic, landed in southern Italy, and challenged the Romans. In the battles of Heraclea and Asculum, Pyrrhus defeated the Roman legions, but his army's own losses were extremely heavy. According to the 1st century CE writer and biographer Plutarch, after the Battle of Asculum, one of Pyrrhus's officers congratulated him on his victory. Pyrrhus replied, One more such victory and we are lost. It is from Pyrrhus's battles against the Romans that we get the term Pyrrhic victory to describe a success so costly it is tantamount to defeat. Following a detour to Sicily to fight the Carthaginians, Pyrrhus returned to Italy and was fought to a draw by the Romans at the Battle of Beneventum. He then retreated to Epirus, abandoning Tarentum to Rome. By seeing off Pyrrhus, the Roman legions proved they were a match for even the most sophisticated and advanced armies of the Mediterranean world. The Roman Republic's military system and the legions were exceptionally formidable. But they did have a handful of weaknesses. One was the impermanence of the army of the Roman Republic. Unlike under the Empire, legions under the Republic were not permanent units, maintained during both peace and war. Instead, the Republic levied new legions at the beginning of a war and then disbanded them when the war ended. Although recruits for the legion often had prior military experience, it still took considerable time and effort to train them, get them used to working in units, and accustom them to their officers. Roman armies therefore started off raw and inexperienced, and only became more efficient and effective over time. Another key weakness of the Roman military system was that it could be a bit too rigidly predictable on the battlefield. An opponent who had experience fighting the Romans, or who had carefully studied their methods, could be highly confident that the Romans would make their main effort in the center of the battlefield, with a two-way of attack by the citizen legions. An opponent blessed with nerve, tactical ability, and efficient, high-quality troops could use this predictability to turn the tables on the legions with deadly results. What we know about the great wars between Carthage and Rome, we owe largely to one of the great Greek historians of antiquity, Polybius of Megalopolis. He is to the Punic Wars what Herodotus is to the Persian Wars and Thucydides to the Peloponnesian Wars, not just a chronicler, but an analyzer and explainer of events. Polybius was born around 200 BCE and died sometime after 118. A prominent citizen of the powerful Greek city-state of Megalopolis, Polybius spent his youth pursuing a promising political and military career. However, in 168 BCE, Megalopolis sided with Macedonia in a war against Rome. After the defeat of the Macedonians at the Battle of Pydna, Polybius was deported to Rome as a political prisoner. Polybius remained in Rome for 16 years. Fortunately for history, he came to know and even love Rome not least because he developed a close friendship with Publius Cornelius Scipio Aemilianus, a member of one of the greatest Roman aristocratic dynasties and the adopted grandson of the general who had led Rome to victory in the Second Punic War. During this period of exile, Polybius researched and wrote much of his histories. He states the goal of his work in a rhetorical challenge to his readers. 
For who is so worthless or indolent as not to wish to know by what means and under what system of polity the Romans in less than 53 years have succeeded in subjugating nearly the whole inhabited world to their sole government, a thing unique in history? In the remarkable rise of Rome, Polybius argues, the Punic Wars were the pivotal events. Polybius was superbly well-informed. Through Scipio Aemilianus, he had access to the highest circles of Roman society and government. He was also diligent, industrious, and generally fair in his judgments. By the standards of ancient historical writing, we can hope for no better source. But his friendships with Roman aristocrats did color important aspects of his work. Again and again, he betrays a clear bias in favor of members of the Aemilii and Cornelii dynasties. A far more serious problem with Polybius's histories is that we do not have most of it. Only six of the history's 40 books have come down to us intact. As a result, Polybius's account of the Punic Wars breaks off after the Battle of Cannae. For the battle's crucial aftermath and the remainder of the Second Punic War, we must turn to the Roman historian Livy, who wrote in the late 1st century BCE. Livy's narrative uses Polybius as a source and appears to follow the Greek historian closely. Long before the First Punic War, Roman Carthage had extensive contacts. Roman and Carthaginian aristocrats cultivated ties of friendship, sometimes spanning generations. Trade and commerce linked Italy with Carthage and its domains. Traces of Roman amphorae, pottery jars that stored export products, have been found in sites from North Africa to eastern Spain. In Rome, there was a quarter called the Vicus Africus, where Punic merchants apparently resided. Formal relations between the Carthaginian and Roman republics were spelled out in three treaties. Polybius dates the first treaty to 509 BCE, the second to 348. Both treaties treated Carthage as the greater power, Rome as the upstart, the new kid on the block. The treaties regulated commerce, but with more restrictions on the Romans, who were forbidden from trading in regions the Carthaginians regarded as their exclusive markets, such as Libya, western Sicily, and Sardinia. The main condition on the Carthaginians was a requirement in the Second Treaty to hand over to the Romans any city in Latium they seized militarily. The Third Treaty was different. In 279 BCE, Carthage and Rome agreed to help each other in case one of them was attacked by Pyrrhus of Epirus. Although nothing came of it during the actual war with Pyrrhus, this treaty reveals the relations between the two powers were friendly enough they could unite against a common enemy. The Romans and the Carthaginians would come to blows because of events in Sicily. The Greek city-states of eastern Sicily habitually fought wars against each other. The Carthaginians were often drawn into these conflicts either to defend or expand the Epicratea, their province in western Sicily. The Romans were newcomers to Sicilian affairs. In 271 BCE, Rome had conquered Regium, the Greek city-state on the Italian side of the Sicilian Straits. In 289 BCE, the end of the latest war between the Greeks and the Carthaginians left unemployed a band of Campanian mercenaries who called themselves the Mamertines, or the people of Mamers. Mamers was the Campanian name for Mars, the Roman god of war. The descriptions in our ancient sources make the Mamertines seem something like an ancient outlaw biker gang. They roved around Sicily, raping, plundering, and causing general mayhem. Eventually, they seized control of the strategically located Greek city of Messana, modern-day Messina. The Mamertines massacred or drove out Messana's male citizens and took their wives for their own. 
Using Masana as a base, they then terrorized eastern Sicily for decades. In 264, the Mamertines made the fatal mistake of going to war against Syracuse, the most powerful Greek city-state in Sicily. Syracuse's ruler, the tyrant Hero, defeated the Mamertines in a pitched battle. Facing annihilation, the Mamertines then made an utterly devious decision. They sent embassies to both the Carthaginians and the Romans, pleading for aid against Syracuse. According to a number of ancient Roman and Greek commentators, Carthaginians and Romans had both long been preparing to go to war with each other. No less a figure than Pyrrhus of Epirus had reputedly observed that Sicily made an excellent wrestling ground for the Carthaginians and Romans. The Messana crisis was just an opportune moment and a convenient excuse. Some historians today continue to follow this line of argument. However, there is no evidence at all to support it. Instead, the events that followed the Mamertines' call for help followed a pattern of action and reaction that then led to an uncontrolled escalation. The Carthaginians acted first. Their general in western Sicily, Hannibal, slipped a small force into Messana. We have precious few further details about Hannibal's action, and we know nothing at all about his motives, but I suspect it was quite likely he acted largely on his own, without the prior knowledge or approval of the authorities in Carthage. If so, then Carthaginian intervention in the Messana crisis was one of the first examples of what would become a common dynamic of imperialism down the ages. A local military commander or local colonial official taking an initiative that later drags in the home government. Before we turn to the Roman reaction to the Messana crisis, I'd just like to make a brief digression to talk about Carthaginian names. Elite Carthaginian men tended to have names of religious origin, so Hannibal meant glory of Baal, Baal being one of the chief Phoenician deities. And similarly, Hamilcar meant Melkart is gracious, Melkart being another Phoenician god. Unfortunately for us, there appear to have only been a very small number of these names. To make matters even worse, most Carthaginians did not appear to use common surnames or family names or even nicknames. This podcast will therefore at times be an unavoidable parade of Hannibals, Magos, and Hannos, each difficult to distinguish from the others. For what it's worth, the ancient sources themselves seem at times to have had a hard time telling individual Carthaginians apart. When the Mamertines' request for aid reached Rome, it provoked a heated debate. On the one hand, the Romans viewed Carthaginian possession of Messana, right across the straits from Regium, as a decisive step in Punic domination of Sicily and a dire threat to the security of southern Italy. On the other hand, aiding brigands like the Mamertines was a serious injustice. The consuls pressed for intervention, but the Roman Senate remained deadlocked. The consuls then took the dramatic step of presenting the Mamertines' appeal to the Comitia Centuriata the most important of the citizen assemblies. Although the citizens were then war-weary after the numerous campaigns to conquer southern Italy, they were ultimately swayed by the consul's promise of what Polybius euphemistically dubs great and obvious benefits. In other words, war booty. The citizens authorized consul Appius Claudius Codex to take an army to Messana. This vote to intervene demonstrates how the internal dynamics of the Republic the fierce competition for glory among the aristocrats and the greed for plunder of the citizen soldiers drove Rome to war. But war against whom? At this stage, the Romans clearly decided that their main enemy was not Carthage, but Syracuse. 
When news had reached Sicily that the Romans had decided to intervene, the Mamertines had thrown out the Carthaginian garrison. The Carthaginian court of 104 had crucified Hannibal for letting himself be evicted from Messana. The Carthaginians had then allied with Hero of Syracuse. Together, the Carthaginians and Syracusans had besieged Messana. Appius Claudius crossed the Sicilian Straits with his army. In two separate battles, he defeated the Carthaginians and the Syracusans. The Carthaginians retreated back to their strongholds in western Sicily. Instead of pursuing the Punic forces, Appius Claudius marched on Syracuse. However, the city was powerfully fortified, and his siege of it failed. In 263 BCE, the Romans decided to double down on their efforts by sending both consular armies to Sicily. This Roman decision indicated that the war on the island had become the Republic's main priority. For their part, the Carthaginians wrongly calculated that Hero and Syracuse could do most of the fighting against the Romans. They concentrated their forces to defend the Epicratea, their province in western Sicily. An even more serious Carthaginian miscalculation was that they failed to use their powerful fleet to block the Sicilian straits and prevent the consular armies from crossing. Once in Sicily, the consuls immediately marched on Syracuse. With seemingly no help coming from his Carthaginian allies, Hero decided to switch sides. He made peace and allied with Rome. Hero's alliance with Rome finally galvanized the government of Carthage. It went on a mercenary hiring binge in Iberia, Gaul, and northern Italy. These fresh forces were concentrated around Akragas, the second-largest Greek city-state in Sicily, and a Carthaginian ally. Yet this powerful Carthaginian army made no move to challenge the Romans and their tightening grip on eastern Sicily, nor did the Carthaginian navy attempt to block the Sicilian straits. This passivity suggests that the Carthaginians were still focused on defending their Epicratea. Even now, after coming to blows with the Romans, Carthage did not want a large-scale war with Rome. For their part, the Romans chose to interpret the Carthaginian build-up as the beginnings of a counterattack to retake Messana and Syracuse. Furthermore, the Roman citizens had not received any of the great and obvious benefits from the war so far. They therefore pressed for an aggressive, offensive campaign. In spring 262, both consuls and their armies once again were sent to Sicily. The consuls immediately marched on Akragas and besieged it. The Carthaginian general Hanno waited for seven months before finally challenging the Romans to battle. The Romans had two consular armies, totaling 40,000 Roman legionaries and Italian allies. Hanno had a formidable host of 50,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and six war elephants. But Hanno deployed his forces badly, placing his elephant corps behind his first line of mercenary infantry. He then proceeded to command them with striking ineptitude. After a long struggle, the Roman legionaries ground up and broke the Carthaginian mercenaries. They fled into the elephants, which panicked in turn and stampeded into the rest of the Carthaginian army. After routing Hanno's army, the Romans captured Akragas. They subjected the city to a harrowing sack, with the legionaries taking away considerable booty. The Romans also sold the city's 25,000 inhabitants into slavery further filling the pockets of the victorious consuls and their troops. With the sack of Akragas, the Roman citizens finally had the war booty they had craved from the beginning of the Sicilian adventure. But the fall of the city led to an even more momentous decision. 
as Polybius described it, when the news of what had occurred at Akragas reached the Roman Senate, in their joy and elation, they no longer confined themselves to their original designs, and were no longer satisfied with having saved the Mamertines and with what they had gained in the war itself, but hoping that it would be possible to drive the Carthaginians entirely out of the island, and that, if this were done, their own power would be much augmented, they directed their attention to this project and to plans that would serve their purpose. The Senate's decision appeared to be based on the calculation that Rome's newly established dominance of eastern Sicily could not coexist with the Carthaginian Epicratea in western Sicily. The fall of Acragas also galvanized the Carthaginians to finally make effective use of their fleet. Beginning in 261 BCE, Carthaginian naval squadrons harried the Roman-held parts of Sicily. More importantly, they launched devastating raids on the coasts of Italy itself. These raids persuaded the Roman Senate to take the unprecedented step of building a fleet of the state-of-the-art war galley of the day, the Cincirem. The building of Rome's new navy is one of the dramatic highlights of Polybius's histories. It would make a thrilling montage scene in a Hollywood action epic. Roman shipwrights had never built a Cincirem before, and they had no idea how to go about it. Fortunately, a Carthaginian Cincirem had run aground off Regium. Using this ship as a model, the shipwrights built 100 kinkerems in just 60 days. To provide crews of rowers, the Romans turned to two sources, their coastal allies and those citizens who could not afford to serve as legionaries in the army. To train these rowers before the ships were ready, the Romans built mock ships on dry land and had the crews sit in them to practice rowing. But the Romans knew their fleet was green in timber and green in crews. In a sea fight employing the traditional tactics of maneuvering, ramming, and boarding, they would be no match for the much more experienced Carthaginians. According to Polybius, an anonymous Roman came up with an ingenious solution. A boarding bridge, about 12 meters long and suspended high above a galley's prow by a system of pulleys and weights. Attached to the end of the bridge was a long iron spike, reminiscent of a bird's beak. This gave the bridge its name of Corvus, or Raven. When a Carthaginian kinkerem closed in, the raven was dropped on it. The iron spike pierced the enemy deck, and the raven locked the Roman and Carthaginian galleys together. Roman legionaries then sprinted across the boarding bridge and surged onto the Carthaginian ship. Thus, a sea fight was transformed into a land battle. The Romans fitted ravens and all 100 of their kinkerems. The Roman fleet challenged the Carthaginian navy off Mylae on the northern coast of Sicily. The Carthaginians, commanded by an admiral named Hannibal, were so overconfident they raced out in their galleys without bothering to maintain formation. The ravens were a deadly shock. The Romans grappled and boarded Carthaginian ship after Carthaginian ship. At the battle's end, the Carthaginians fled after losing 50 of their 130 galleys. The Roman decision to take to the sea represented the final escalation in the war. Both sides now became fully committed to winning the conflict. They mobilized all of their economic resources and manpower for the war effort. The war was still focused on Sicily and its surrounding seas. The fighting was amphibious. The armies fought for control of the coasts and vital ports. The navies transported troops and supplies and supported sieges of the major coastal strongholds. On land, the Romans had their way. The legions won every major battle. The Roman armies advanced inexorably westward, conquering virtually all of the Carthaginian Epicratea. 
More surprisingly, the Romans also prevailed at sea. The Roman fleet defeated the vaunted Carthaginian navy in two great battles, the first in 258 at Sulci off Sardinia, after which the Carthaginian crews crucified their admiral Hannibal, who is most likely the same Hannibal as at Mylae, and in 257 off Tindarus on the north coast of Sicily. The Roman navy squadrons and privateers raided Sardinia and increasingly the coasts of North Africa itself. But the Roman advance stalled before the last three Carthaginian strongholds in western Sicily, Panormus, Drapana, and Lilibium. If inept on offense, the Carthaginians proved highly resourceful and tenacious on defense. Their land forces parried every Roman attempt to take these strongholds, and their fleet managed to keep them supplied. Yet another Hannibal, nicknamed the Rhodian, became famous on both sides for his ability to speed through the Roman naval blockade in a specially designed Kinkerem. With the war in Sicily a quagmire, the Romans made yet another fateful strategic decision. They decided to take the war directly against Carthage by invading North Africa. Both consuls and their armies were assigned to this operation. More importantly, the Romans mobilized their largest fleet of the entire war. 330 kinkerems, manned by 140,000 rowers, sailors, and marines. The surviving Carthaginian strongholds on Sicily controlled the island's sheltered northern coast. The massive Roman invasion fleet was thus forced to sail and row along the much more exposed southern shore. This would soon have disastrous consequences. At Cape Echnomus, the Roman armada encountered a Carthaginian fleet of 350 kinkerems, with 150,000 crewmen and marines aboard. The ensuing Battle of Cape Echnomus remains the largest naval battle in history in terms of the number of men engaged. We ought to pause for a moment to let that fact sink in. It testifies to how both republics were now committed to total war. At Cape Echnomus, the Carthaginians once again tried to employ the traditional war galley tactics of ramming and boarding. But once again, they had no answer for the ravens. By the end of this brutal battle, the Romans had sunk or captured 94 Carthaginian vessels while losing 24 kinkerems of their own. The demoralized Carthaginians scattered to their home bases, leaving the Romans in total command of the seas. The Romans landed their armies near Carthage. They ravaged the countryside, taking thousands of slaves and freeing thousands of Roman and Italian prisoners. Then, an order arrived from the Senate to withdraw the invasion fleet and one of the consular armies with all of the booty and freed prisoners. The remaining army of the consul Marcus Regulus continued the campaign. At a battle near a town called Addis, Regulus and his consular army smashed the army that the Carthaginians had mobilized to defend their home territories. Even worse for Carthage, their Libyan subjects, oppressed by years of heavy taxation and relentless conscription, rebelled. Facing both military defeat and internal rebellion, the Carthaginians asked for peace terms from the Romans. These terms were presented by Consul Regulus, and they were harsh. The Carthaginians were to surrender Sicily and Sardinia and also pay Rome a large war indemnity. Historians have been highly critical of Regulus, arguing that the consul could have convinced the Carthaginians to surrender with more moderate conditions. But Adrian Goldsworthy points out that Regulus's approach was typical of Roman war-making. The Romans fought until their enemies were utterly defeated and accepted their domination. Anything less was not victory. 
Regulus's terms were unacceptable to the Carthaginians, who resolved to continue fighting. They poured resources into hiring a new mercenary army. Among the new mercenaries was a Spartan captain named Xanthippus. In an unprecedented move, the Carthaginian authorities appointed him to command the army. Xanthippus restored the morale of the Carthaginian troops and trained them thoroughly before leading them out to fight. In the spring of 255 BCE, the Carthaginian and Roman armies met on the flat Bagradus plain, south of Carthage. Both were even in numbers at about 16,000 each. Xanthippus, however, was vastly superior in cavalry and had 100 elephants. In the ensuing battle, the Roman legionaries pushed back the Carthaginian mercenaries, but a well-timed charge by the elephants bowled them over. Meanwhile, the Carthaginian cavalry drove away their enemy counterparts and then swept in behind the Roman infantry. Regulus's army was encircled and slaughtered. Only 2,000 survivors managed to escape to the Romans' base on the coast. Regulus and 500 others were captured. For winning Carthage's only major victory on land of the entire war, Xanthippus received a substantial bonus from the Adirim, the Carthaginian Senate. The Adirim then dismissed him from service. Even at a moment of crisis, the Carthaginians were unwilling to place their army in the hands of a foreigner. The Romans later spread a rumor that the Carthaginians assassinated Xanthippus, a typical example of Punic treachery. In reality, the Spartan captain went to work for the king of Egypt. The annihilation of Regulus's army was only the first calamity suffered by Rome in the spring of 255 BCE. A great fleet of 355 ships under the command of the year's two consuls set out to reinforce Regulus. The Romans crushed the Carthaginian fleet off Cape Bon, capturing no less than 114 ships out of 200. But on arrival in Africa, they found that Regulus had already been beaten and captured. The fleet evacuated Regulus's troops and set course for Sicily. Off Sicily's southern coast, the fleet ran into a great storm. All but 80 of the ships sank, and an almost unbelievable 100,000 Romans and Italian allies drowned. With the disastrous end of Rome's North African adventure, the fighting shifted back to Sicily. In 252 BCE, the Romans managed to take Panormus, the most important Carthaginian city on the island. But Lilibium and Drapana continued to hang on. In 249, the Carthaginians appointed a group of energetic and highly able commanders for their Sicilian forces. One admiral named Adurbal took command of the fleet at Drapana. He began an aggressive policy of raiding the Italian coasts. The Roman consul, Claudius Pulcher, took half of Rome's fleet to attack it. Pulcher attempted to surprise the Carthaginians, but was detected, and, in the ensuing Battle of Drapana, heavily defeated, losing 93 of his 123 ships. The great Roman writer and politician Cicero later blamed Pulcher's defeat on a spectacular act of impiety. As was customary, the Roman consul's flagship had carried a cage of sacred chickens. Shortly before the battle, when Pulcher learned that the holy poultry were refusing to eat, which was considered a bad omen, he declared, if they won't eat, then let them drink. He then flung the chickens overboard. The more prosaic cause for the Carthaginians' only major naval victory of the war was that Adderbal had turned the tables on Pulcher and fought a battle where the Carthaginians were finally able to make full use of their superior seamanship. But even worse was to befall Rome. 
off the storm-wracked southern coast of Sicily, Adderbal's equally talented colleague, Carthalo, lured the other half of the Roman fleet into an exposed position. When a tempest approached, Carthalo and his squadron ran for the cover of Cape Pacinus. The Romans were exposed to the full fury of the elements. Out of 120 kinkarems and 400 transports, only two kinkarems survived. The Roman losses between 255 and 249 BCE beggar the imagination. Some 550 ships had been sunk and more than 200,000 men drowned. These would have been staggering losses for any society in any period of history. But the population of the entire Italian peninsula during the First Punic War was just 3 million people. When the Roman censors counted the Republic's male citizens in 247 BCE, they found 50,000 fewer citizens than the last pre-war census. The Carthaginians were also in trouble. Their manpower losses were perhaps only a little less severe. But Carthage's treasury was now teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. To keep their war effort going, the Carthaginians tried to borrow 2,000 silver talents from King Ptolemy II of Egypt. This was an enormous sum, equivalent to 52 metric tons of precious metal. The Egyptian king declined. The Carthaginians tried to negotiate an end to the war, but the Romans refused. The only real result of these peace negotiations was a famous Roman myth. The Carthaginians had the captured consul Regulus take their peace offer to Rome. Regulus promised the Carthaginians he would return regardless of the outcome of the negotiations, but instead of presenting the Carthaginian terms, Regulus urged the Senate to fight to the end. He then kept his promise and returned to Carthage. The Carthaginians stuffed Regulus into a small box lined with spikes, and he eventually died from exhaustion and sleep deprivation. Long after the Punic Wars, the Romans held up Regulus as a model of civic virtue and devotion to duty. The last years of the First Punic War amounted to a grim struggle of attrition between two increasingly exhausted powers. Polybius memorably compares Roman Carthage to two fighting cocks who had slashed each other to ribbons but were still in the ring, still trying to muster up a last bit of strength to deal a death blow. The Romans remained determined to drive the Carthaginians from Sicily. The Carthaginian strategy seemed to be to just hang on in the hopes that the Romans would eventually give up. In 247 BCE, the Carthaginians made a final change of commanders on Sicily. The talented, successful pair of Adderbal and Carthalo was replaced by a new general named Hamilcar. The ancient sources do not explain this command change. Dexter Hoyos speculates that it was the result of internal political struggles within the Carthaginian state. Hamilcar took command of the field army in Sicily. He proved to be an inspired choice. An extremely skilled tactician and inspirational leader, Hamilcar pursued an aggressive policy of harassing the Romans from his impregnable base on Mount Hyrcte. Dexter Hoyos speculates that Mount Hyrcte is modern Mount Castellaccio. Hamilcar's goal was to prevent the fall of the last Carthaginian strongholds on Sicily, and also weaken the enemy until he could at last defeat them in pitched battle. Hamilcar's fast marches and sudden raids earned him the nickname Barca, or Lightning. Polybius considers Hamilcar the finest commander on either side of the entire war. However, he never enjoyed the resources to overcome the Romans. It was the Romans who made one last, ultimate effort. Their own resources were now also almost gone. In 242 BCE, 
the Roman Senate raised a loan from the leading Roman citizens under the condition that they would only be reimbursed in the event of victory. The money was used to build one last fleet of Kinkirems. The Carthaginians were forced to respond by mobilizing a final fleet of their own. But the former masters of the western Mediterranean had fallen so low that their crews and rowers were raw and no match for the Romans. At the Battle of the Aigadas Islands, in 241, the Roman fleet destroyed the Carthaginian armada. The Carthaginians no longer had the wherewithal to put any more ships to sea. The Carthaginian Senate crucified the defeated admirals and ordered Hamilcar Barca to open peace negotiations. The Roman consul's peace terms in 241 BCE were almost as harsh as those offered by Regulus in 256. The Carthaginians gave up all of Sicily. The entire island, except for the city-state of Syracuse, became Rome's first province outside the Italian peninsula. In addition, Carthage was required to surrender all the islands between Sicily and Italy. Finally, Carthage was to pay the Romans 1,000 talents in silver immediately and then another 2,200 over 10 years. These sums were enormous, and the Romans intended them to be so crippling that Carthage could never challenge Rome again. The Carthaginians had no choice but to accept these painful terms. For both Rome and Carthage, the First Punic War had been a struggle of unprecedented length and scale. Neither side had ever fought a war of such duration, nor deployed such huge forces on both land and sea. For Carthage, the war's length equaled those of all the wars it had fought in the 4th century BCE. For Rome, the war forced it to fight outside Italy for the first time, as well as pushed it into becoming a major naval power. Time and time again, both sides had raised new armies and fleets to replace those that had been lost. The end of the war saw Rome supplant Carthage as the leading power of the western Mediterranean. Carthage was largely reduced to just an African state. After the crushing defeat of the First Punic War, Carthage's fortunes fell even further. Under the terms of the peace treaty signed with the Romans, the Carthaginians had to evacuate their remaining forces from Sicily. 20,000 mercenaries and Libyan conscripts arrived back in North Africa. They were seasoned veterans and well-armed and extremely angry because they had not been paid for years. When the Carthaginian government prevaricated about their back pay, then tried to renege, they mutinied. The mutineers were immediately joined by Carthage's Libyan subjects, who again rose up in rebellion. What followed next was a bloodbath called the Truceless War. As summed up by Polybius, this war lasted for three years and four months, and it far excelled all wars we know of in cruelty and defiance of principle. Even given some exaggeration by our historian, the war was nevertheless fought by both sides with stomach-churning savagery. The mutineers and Libyan rebels massacred any Carthaginian citizens who fell into their hands, mutilated captives, and murdered dissidents in their own ranks. The Carthaginians retaliated by laying waste to Libyan rebel communities and executing prisoners with ever more elaborate atrocities, such as having them trampled to death by elephants. At the nadir of the truceless war, the mutineers captured the Libyphoenician towns of Utica and Hippuacra, then went on to beleaguer Carthage itself. The tide only began to turn when the Carthaginian Senate entrusted the supreme command to Hamilcar Barca, the gifted general who had led Carthage's last field army in Sicily. In a series of brutal campaigns, Hamilcar routed the rebel armies and recaptured the Libyphoenician towns. He exacted a brutal revenge on the leaders of the mutineers. 
the surviving ringleader, a Libyan soldier named Mathos, was paraded through the streets of Carthage. As he walked, he was slowly tortured to death by the citizens. By contrast, Hamilcar treated the Libyans who revolted with exemplary leniency. This wisdom would pay enormous dividends during the Second Punic War, when the Libyans stayed loyal throughout. From afar, Rome was closely watching Carthage's agony. The Romans refused to aid the mutineers, who seemed to them like just another outlaw biker gang like the Mamertines, only on a much larger scale. But when the fortunes of war swung back to Carthage, the attitudes of Rome's decision-makers quickly hardened. In 237, Rome demanded that Carthage surrender Sardinia and pay an additional massive indemnity of 1,200 talents. To drive the demand home, the consuls and senate convinced the Comitia Centuriata to declare war on Carthage. Having barely survived the truceless war, the Carthaginians had no choice except to swallow this latest and most unjust example of Roman aggression. Why did Rome make its move in 237 BCE? I think there were three reasons. First, there was the age-old cultural dynamic of Roman imperialism, the quest for military glory by the aristocrats and for booty by the common citizens. For decades afterwards, Sardinia's main use to Rome was as a campaigning theatre for war-hungry consuls and praetors. Second were the long-term security concerns of the Roman state. In putting down the Great Mutiny, Carthage revealed unexpectedly deep powers of resilience and recuperation. Seizing Sardinia deprived the Carthaginians of a forward base against Italy in any future war. The levy of a further war indemnity was designed to prevent that war by deepening Carthage's financial woes. Finally, there was the bullying attitude of Roman aggression. The Romans never missed an opportunity to kick an opponent who was down. Victoring the truceless war confirmed Hamilcar Barca as the most gifted Carthaginian general of his time. More importantly, Hamilcar's victory also led to a crucial transformation in the nature and political structure of the Carthaginian Republic. After the truceless war, Hamilcar Barca was not just commander of the army, he was also the leader of the state. Even more importantly, he was able to pass on his power and authority to successors from within his immediate family. From the end of the Truceless War to long after the Second Punic War, the true leaders of Carthage were not the elected chief civilian magistrates, the Sufets, or the Senate, the Adurim, but the generals of Hamilcar's dynasty, which historians have called the Barsids. The chief, indeed the only priority of the new Barsid regime, was the rebuilding of Carthaginian prosperity and power. Even before the Great Mutiny was defeated, Hamilcar and his followers were already hatching plans to this end. Africa was an unlikely source for a Carthaginian revival. The Carthaginians already controlled the best territories, stretching along the North African shore. Further expansion would bring them into rugged country, inhabited by the numerous and warlike Numidians. Hamilcar next considered Sardinia. Before he could act, the Romans had robbed the Carthaginians of the island. Only then did the Barsids turn their sights to Spain. As matters turned out, Spain was a superb choice. A necklace of Phoenician colonies girded the Iberian Peninsula. Since most were allies or dependencies of Carthage, they provided an excellent base for expansion. The Spanish hinterlands were rich in agricultural goods and precious metals, particularly silver, that could help rebuild Carthage's economy and treasury. The mosaic of warlike tribes and chiefdoms that covered southern Spain had long furnished mercenaries to Carthage's armies. 
Asserting Carthaginian dominion over these tribes would mean these tough, disciplined, and skilled warriors could be levied in even greater numbers. In 237 BCE, Hamilcar arrived at the ancient Phoenician colony of Gades, modern-day Cadiz, with a veteran army that had won the Truceless War. His second-in-command was his son-in-law Hasdrubal, who was his equal in ability and energy. He also brought his eldest son, Hannibal Barca. Although only nine years old, Hannibal was ready to begin his military and political apprenticeship at his father's side. Hamilcar immediately set out to conquer Spain. Between 237 and 229 BCE, he conducted a series of sweeping campaigns that pushed Carthaginian control relentlessly eastwards, down the Guadalquivir River Valley and into the heart of the Iberian Peninsula. He employed a cunning combination of violence and diplomacy. For example, he had one Spanish lord, Indortes, blinded, castrated, and crucified, but he spared and freed Indortes's warrior followers. In the winter of 229-228 BCE, Hamilcar perished while on campaign. In Polybius's words, he finally met with an end worthy of his high achievements, dying bravely in a battle against one of the most warlike and powerful tribes after freely exposing his person to danger on the field. During his eight years in Spain, he had succeeded in reviving Carthage's prosperity and power. The wealth of Spain helped the Carthaginians pay off the Roman war indemnity in full and on time. Spanish warriors now filled the ranks of a rebuilt army. According to the 1st century BCE Sicilian Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, the Barsid army in Spain alone totaled 50,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 100 elephants. Hamilcar's achievements had also worked a transformation of the Carthaginian Empire. Before the First Punic War, Carthage had been a primarily maritime empire. Its principal armed force was its large, powerful navy. Its territorial interests were the major and minor islands of the western Mediterranean. Hamilcar turned Carthage into an empire more like Rome. It was now a continental land power, based primarily in Iberia. The navy, the former senior service, went into permanent eclipse. The army was now both the leading armed force and the source of political power in the republic. That Carthage had become a republic ruled by a warlord was revealed by the rise to power of Hamilcar's successor, his son-in-law, Hasdrubal. The Carthaginian officers of the Spanish army acclaimed Hasdrubal their general. The civilian government in Carthage, which was largely in the hands of the Barsid's relatives, friends, and allies, then meekly ratified the officers' decision. Hasdrubal continued Hamilcar's policies with equal ability and determination. He drove Carthage's dominions northwards until it reached the banks of the Tagus River. Hasdrubal also built a new capital for the Carthaginian Empire in Spain. It was located on the finest harbor in southeastern Iberia, and so enjoyed easy communications with North Africa. Exhibiting a stunning lack of originality, Hasdrubal named his city Carthadash, Carthage. The Romans dubbed it Cartago Nova, literally New New City. Today, it is Cartagena in Murcia. The Romans at first did not interfere with the Barsid's empire building. In fact, Roman Carthage had no formal contacts at all for 12 years after the Sardinia crisis in 237 BCE. The Roman Republic had been drawn to the Balkans and Cisalpine Gaul, the region of northern Italy centered on the Po River Valley inhabited by the Gauls. But in 225 BCE, a high-ranking Roman embassy went to Hasdrubal. 
the Barsid warlord and the Roman ambassadors negotiated a treaty in which the Carthaginians engaged not to cross the Ebro River in arms. By contrast, no conditions at all were placed on the Romans. This treaty has often been characterized as another example of Roman bullying. Polybius states that the Romans had finally awoken to the threat of Carthage's new empire in Spain, and were now trying to impose a clear limit on Hasdrubal's expansion. But many historians point out that Hasdrubal had no reason to agree to the Romans' demand if it was too onerous. In 225, Hasdrubal's frontier was still at the Tagus River, some 500 kilometers south of the Ebro. Hasdrubal, I think, interpreted the treaty as a Roman acknowledgement that the four-fifths of Spain south of the Ebro were now a Carthaginian dominion. The Romans wanted to come to terms with Hasdrubal because they were about to embark on a major war with the tribes of Cisalpine Gaul. Not since the height of the First Punic War did Rome mobilize such large forces, 14 legions and allies, amounting to nearly 130,000 troops. Moreover, a substantial proportion of these forces was stationed in southern Italy and Sicily. The only reason for this deployment was to counter any possible interference by Carthage. Yet, by coming to an agreement with Hasdrubal, the Romans were neutralizing the Carthaginians so that they could concentrate on the Gauls. In 221 BCE, Hasdrubal was assassinated. His successor was Hannibal Barca, who had been serving as Hasdrubal's deputy and commander of cavalry. Just as with Hasdrubal, the officers of the army of Spain elected Hannibal their general. Their decision was then ratified by a vote in the citizen assembly in Carthage. According to Polybius, this vote was unanimous. Hannibal was just 26 years old when he became chief general and de facto ruler of Carthage. Unfortunately, while we have a great deal of information about what Hannibal did, we know almost nothing about the man himself. Here, the nearly complete absence of Carthaginian sources is especially significant. We know these sources did exist. Two of Hannibal's closest companions produced histories of his campaigns. His tutor, the Spartan Sicilus, and the Sicilian Greek historian Silenus. But only three brief fragments of their works survive. Hannibal therefore comes to us through his enemies, the Romans and their Greek friends, they depict him as a military genius, an inspirational leader, and the deadliest enemy they ever faced. Polybius calls the Second Punic War simply the war against Hannibal or the Hannibalic War to emphasize his central place in it. The Romans also accused Hannibal of duplicity, treachery, and greed. In other words, all of the stereotypical Punic character traits. Above all, they were convinced he had a burning hatred of Rome. Later, Long after the Second Punic War, after Hannibal had become just a bugbear whom Roman mothers might evoke to frighten disobedient children, the Romans could attribute some more positive qualities to him, but this only served to magnify their achievement in defeating him. So Hannibal will forever be almost completely enshrouded by a fog of Roman propaganda and myth. Only occasionally does that fog lift to offer glimpses of the real man. As soon as he took command in Spain, Hannibal demonstrated that he was a more than worthy successor to Hamilcar and Hasdrubal. In the autumn of 221, he led a punitive expedition against the Olcades, a tribe in central Spain that had rebelled against Hasdrubal. This expedition brought in substantial booty, which Hannibal distributed to his officers and troops, sealing his popularity with the army. In 220 BCE, he campaigned against the Vaca'e people of northwestern Spain. 
This campaign also brought the first of his great battlefield victories. On his way back from the lands of the Vaca'e, he was treacherously attacked by the powerful Carpetani. Chased by an army of 100,000 Carpetani warriors, no doubt an overestimate, Hannibal crossed the Tagus River at a ford called Tolitum and then lay in wait for the enemy. When a significant portion of the enemy warriors had come over the river, he crushed them with his cavalry and 40 elephants. He then recrossed the river and routed the remaining warriors. Polybius states that after Toletum, all of the Spanish tribes up to the Ebro rushed to submit to the Carthaginians. In other words, in just two campaigns, Hannibal had spread Carthaginian power over as much territory as Hamilcar and Hasdrubal had in 16 years. The instrument of Hannibal's first little-known victory at Toletum, as well as his most famous triumph at Cannae, was the superb army created by the Barsids. This army differed from the Roman army in two crucial respects. First, the power of the Roman army was based on its legionary heavy infantry fighting in the multi-line manipular system. Carthaginian armies had been influenced by the powerful military legacy of Alexander the Great and his successors, the rulers of the great Hellenistic kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. An ideal Hellenistic army was a balanced force of heavy infantry, cavalry, light-armed skirmishers, and elephants. The army's effectiveness depended on a general using these various troops in judicious combination. Second, while the Roman army consisted of Roman citizens, mainly peasant farmers called up to serve as legionaries, Carthaginian armies were made up of foreign soldiers, drawn from right across the western Mediterranean. Many of these soldiers were levied from Carthage's subject peoples, such as the Libyans, or from allies like the Numidians. Others, such as the Balearic Islanders, were genuine mercenaries who served purely for pay. Carthaginian citizens only served in the army as officers. Yet, as we'll see shortly, they played crucial roles in ensuring the Carthaginian army's cohesion and combat effectiveness. The most reliable troops in Hannibal's army were his Libyan infantry. Recruited from Carthage's North African subjects, they fought as heavy, close-order troops. They had bronze helmets, large round shields, and body armor, sometimes made from metal, but more often from stiffened linen. They most likely fought with spears. The Libyans were well-drilled and disciplined, and capable of intricate maneuvers. The other heavy infantry in Hannibal's army were Spanish. The Romans dubbed them scutati, because they carried large oval shields that resembled the legionary's shield. The Spanish infantry depended entirely on these shields for protection, as they did not appear to be equipped with any body armor at all, not even helmets. The normal Spanish costume was a white linen tunic with a brightly colored border and a floppy cap of leather, felt, or sinew. For offensive arms, the Spanish foot carried javelins similar to the Roman pilum. Their main weapon was the sword, which was either the cut-and-thrust type which had been adopted by the Roman legionaries or a curved slashing weapon reminiscent of a machete called the falcata. The Spanish tribesmen provided the bulk of Hannibal's cavalry. They were close-order, hand-to-hand fighters, so they undoubtedly employed the four-horned saddle. The Spanish cavalry were armed and equipped much like their foot, a large shield, a spear or javelins, and a sword. Only Spanish officers and picked fighters appeared to have had armor. The rest wore the linen tunics and floppy caps of all Spanish warriors. The other element of Hannibal's cavalry and the most famous troops in his army were the Numidian light horse. The native Berber-speaking people of North Africa 
The Numidians were superlative horsemen, riding fast, agile horses without bridle or saddle. They were armed with a bunch of javelins and used only a small circular shield for protection. In combat, Numidian cavalry did not engage in hand-to-hand combat with their enemies. Instead, they swept into javelin range of the enemy, threw their weapons, then rode away again before they could be caught. In addition, they were devastating in pursuit, tirelessly chasing and cutting down fleeing foes. Hannibal often used the Numidians as his army's commandos, assigning them to especially dangerous and important missions. The Romans had no answer for the Numidians. A turning point of the Second Punic War was when the Romans made an ally of the newly unified Numidian kingdom, and so acquired their own Numidian horsemen. After the Romans took control of North Africa, Numidian cavalry, dubbed Equites Mori, or Moorish horse, became a permanent and formidable part of their armies. Numidian horsemen are prominently shown on the great triumphal column erected by the Emperor Trajan to commemorate his victory over the Dacians in the 2nd century CE, and which still stands today in the heart of Rome. Hannibal's light-armed skirmishers consisted of javeliners and slingers. The javeliners were Libyans, Numidians, and Spaniards. They carried a small round shield and wore a helmet, at most, for armor. In addition to their javelins, they would have carried a sword or dagger. Hannibal's slingers were the Balearic Islanders, famous across the Mediterranean world for their skill and their savagery in combat. Today, Hannibal's elephants are probably the best-known part of his army. Ironically, they were also the least effective. Elephants were a mainstay of the armies of the great Hellenistic kingdoms of Egypt, Syria, and Macedonia. Carthage copied this element of Hellenistic warfare as it did so many others. But Carthage only had access to smaller African elephants, not the larger, more fearsome Indian beasts employed by the Hellenistic armies. On the battlefield, elephants struck fear into troops who had never seen them before. They were also particularly effective against cavalry because horses did not like their smell. But elephants were highly sensitive and temperamental animals, difficult to train and maneuver. Moreover, the Romans had fought against elephants extensively during the war against Pyrrhus and the First Punic War. To them, they were hardly a surprise. Worst of all, elephants cost a huge amount of attention and resources to keep healthy and alive. In the end, they proved more trouble than they were worth. The core of Hannibal's army consisted of African and Spanish veterans who had served and fought under Hamilcar and Hasdrubal. These men were tough, experienced, highly disciplined, and fiercely loyal to the Barsid family, who had led them to victory and richly rewarded them for their prowess. Hannibal's close-order Libyan and Spanish infantry were at least as good as Roman legionaries. Hannibal's cavalry and light-armed skirmishers were far better than the Roman equivalents. The Romans neglected cavalry, treating it as a supporting arm to the battle-winning legionaries. Roman Velites consisted of those who were too young or too poor to fight in the legionary battle line. By contrast, Hannibal's light troops were professional specialists. The key to the effectiveness of Hannibal's army was its Carthaginian officers. They held Hannibal's army together in spite of its extreme cultural and linguistic heterogeneity. The ancient sources never mention Hannibal's army getting into trouble because its troops and leaders could not understand each other. Another multi-ethnic, multilingual army of more recent vintage, the Kaiserliche Königliche Armee of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, used a common language of command, German, for the 100 most frequently used orders. 
Perhaps the Carthaginians had a similar system, most likely employing Greek, the lingua franca of the Mediterranean world. In any case, Hannibal's officers must have been remarkable linguists. They were also professional soldiers of long and varied experience. Like Hannibal himself, most had served under Hamilcar and Hasdrubal during the Carthaginian conquest of Spain. They had developed deep reservoirs of military knowledge and skill. Hannibal's officers had also learned to work with and trust one another. Collectively, they were markedly superior to their Roman counterparts. Above all, the officers of the Carthaginian army in Spain were absolutely devoted to Hannibal. The great British admiral, Horatio Nelson, used the Shakespearean term Band of Brothers to describe the Royal Navy captains he had led to such famous victories as the Battle of the Nile and the Battle of Trafalgar. I think Band of Brothers also aptly describes Hannibal's officers. In some cases, these officers were literally his brothers. When he took command of the army in 221 BCE, his younger brothers Hasdrubal and Mago were key subordinates. Another officer, Hanno, son of Bomilcar, was Hannibal's nephew. Hannibal's closest friend and rival in military exploits was Mago the Samnite. A certain Hannibal Monomachus, Hannibal the Duelist, became loathed by the Romans for his cruelty. Carthalo and yet another Hasdrubal would make crucial contributions to Hannibal's great victories. And Maharbal, one of Hannibal's most effective cavalry officers, would also gain immortality for a handful of critical words he directed at his commanding general after Cannae. Hannibal and his band of brothers would soon face the greatest challenge of their lives. In the winter of 220 BCE, following his successful campaign against the Vacae and Carpetani, Hannibal returned to New Carthage. There he found two high-ranking Roman ambassadors waiting for him. The Roman ambassadors made two stark demands. First, they repeated the basic condition of the 225 treaty with Hasdrubal. The Carthaginians were not to cross the Ebro in arms. Second, they warned Hannibal to keep his hands off Saguntum. Saguntum was a small but prosperous hill town in southeastern Spain. Although located deep inside Carthaginian territory, it had aggressively maintained its independence. To help keep the Carthaginians away, Saguntum had been wooing the Romans for years. Respecting the 225 BCE treaty with Hasdrubal, the Romans had always turned Saguntum down. Now in 220, the Romans announced to Hannibal that Saguntum was under their protection. The Romans intended their embassy of 220 BCE to be largely a repeat of 225. The embassy's goals were to establish contact with the new Barsid warlord and to clearly establish an acceptable limit to his ambitions. But a lot had changed since 225. Hannibal looked upon the Roman ambassadors as bullies and togas. Carthaginian power was now closing in on the Ebro. If the Barsids were to continue expanding, they would have to cross the river into northern Spain, a land rich in military manpower and natural resources, especially gold. Beyond was the vast, unconquered territory that the Romans called Transalpine Gaul, or Gaul across the Alps. In sum, Hannibal could no longer accept the Ebro line as a limit to Carthaginian dominion. Hannibal found the Romans' demand to keep his hands off Saguntum even more galling. By putting Saguntum under its protection, Rome was declaring that it was willing to interfere in the Carthaginian Empire in southern Spain. If Hannibal gave in to this demand, the Romans would be emboldened to keep interfering. Hannibal's answer to Rome was therefore clear and uncompromising. 
In the spring of 219 BCE, he laid siege to Saguntum. The Romans had clearly expected Hannibal to accept their terms just as Hasdrubal had done. His siege of Saguntum caught them militarily unprepared. In 219, both consuls and their armies had been sent to the Balkans. This development turned out to be a lucky break for Hannibal, because his siege of Saguntum took him and his army nine months. Siege warfare turned out to be one of the greatest weaknesses of Hannibal's generalship. When Saguntum finally fell, Hannibal subjected the town to a thorough sack and sold its surviving inhabitants into slavery. By attacking a town under Rome's protection, Hannibal in turn forced the Romans to send their own clear and uncompromising message. A delegation of eminent Romans, including the most senior senator, Marcus Fabius Buteo, sailed to Carthage in spring 218. Buteo presented a simple ultimatum to the Carthaginian chief magistrates, the Suffets, and the Carthaginian senate, the Adirim. Surrender Hannibal and his leading officers, or face war. The Carthaginians responded with a series of increasingly convoluted arguments. Buteo cut debate short by dramatically grabbing a fold of his toga in each hand. I hold both war and peace, the old senator declared. Which would you have? Either one, equally, angrily answered one of the Suffets. Buteo opened his right hand and announced, Then I give you war. We accept it, cried the Adirim. The Second Punic War, Hannibal's War, had begun. The Romans and their Greek friends blamed the Second Punic War on Hannibal's hatred of Rome. The Barsids had been planning a war of revenge ever since the loss of Sardinia in 237 BCE. Hamilcar and Hasdrubal had conquered Spain to acquire a base as well as the military resources to attack Rome. Hannibal then exploited the Saguntum crisis to bring the war about. Polybius even identified the precise moment when Hannibal's hatred began. In the third book of his histories, he records this story, supposedly told by Hannibal himself to Antiochus III, ruler of the Seleucid kingdom of Syria. When my father was about to go on his Iberian expedition, I was nine years old, and as he was offering the sacrifice to Zeus, I stood near the altar. The sacrifice successfully performed, my father poured the libation and went through the usual ritual. He then bade all the other worshippers stand a little back and calling me to him, asked me affectionately whether I wished to go with him on his expedition. Upon my eagerly assenting and begging with boyish enthusiasm to be allowed to go, he took me by the right hand and led me up to the altar and bade me lay my hand upon the victim and swear that I would never be friends with Rome. So long then, Antiochus, as your policy is one of hostility to Rome, you may feel quite secure of having in me a most thorough-going supporter. But if you ever make terms or friendship with her, then you need not wait for any slander to make you distrust me and be on your guard against me, for there is nothing in my power that I would not do against her. The story of Hannibal's oath is famous in its own right. However, the evidence from the events of the outbreak of the Second Punic War argues strongly against the Roman accusation of a long-term Barsid plan for a war of revenge. The Saguntum Crisis was an escalating cycle of action and reaction resembling the crisis at the outbreak of the First Punic War. But the most compelling piece of evidence against the Barsid revenge thesis is the weakness of the Carthaginian navy. As gifted military leaders, Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, and Hannibal would have clearly understood that a strong fleet was a necessity for any offensive war against Rome. 
Yet, in the 19 years between their arrival in Spain and the outbreak of the Second Punic War, a period during which they enjoyed absolute military and political power, the three Barsid warlords did nothing to reverse the rapid decay of Carthaginian naval power. When Saguntum fell in autumn 219, the Carthaginian navy amounted to 32 kinkerems in Spain and another 55 in Carthage. This paltry strength was no match for a Roman navy of 220 kinkerems. What the evidence much more persuasively points to is a Barsid defensive policy of strengthening Carthage so that it could stand up to Roman aggression and bullying. This Barsid policy had produced spectacular results. Even today, the Second Punic War is regarded as pitting a Roman Goliath against the Carthaginian David. In this view, Rome's reserves of military manpower had grown so immense and so overwhelming that Carthage could never hope to match them. Only the military genius of Hannibal and the skill of his invincible army of veterans allowed the Carthaginians to fight so effectively for so long. The reality was starkly different and was accurately captured by Livy, who stresses that no other states or nations that have come into conflict had greater resources than these two peoples, nor had the combatants themselves ever been stronger or more powerful. As Polybius famously recorded, the Roman censors in 225 had tallied up the numbers of Roman and Italian allied men able to bear arms. They had come up with the awesome figure of 700,000 infantry and 70,000 cavalry. In 218, for the new war against Carthage, the Roman Senate dipped into this deep manpower pool to mobilize 27,000 Roman citizens and six legions and 44,000 allies, for a total of 71,000 troops. As for the Carthaginians, Hannibal threw himself into energetic preparations for war against Rome as soon as Saguntum fell. He first made sure that Spain and Africa were both adequately defended. Hannibal sent 20,000 Spanish warriors to Carthage and brought 12,600 Libyans and Numidians to Spain. These troops would be augmented by local levies. Hannibal reserved 90,000 men and 37 elephants for the army he would personally command. These numbers are taken from a bronze tablet that Hannibal left at the Temple to Hera at Cape Lacinium near Croton in southern Italy. Although the tablet has been lost, it was seen and copied by Polybius. The numbers show that Carthage's initial mobilization in the Second Punic War was even greater than Rome's, 122,600 Carthaginians to 71,000 Romans. The Barsids had succeeded in rebuilding Carthage's military strength to at least the equal of Rome's. Throughout most of the war, Carthage was able to continue raising large armies. It also rebuilt its fleet. Carthage's military power was only eclipsed by Rome at the very end. The Second Punic War, then, was a conflict of two Goliaths. Both Goliaths were planning short wars that would be won by direct attacks on the enemy's homeland. For the 218 campaigning year, the Roman Senate ordered Consul Publius Cornelius Scipio to conquer Carthaginian Spain, with his consular army of two legions and allies. Consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus was to go to Sicily with his two-legion consular army to prepare for an invasion of Africa. The remaining two legions, under the command of a praetor, were to hold down Cisalpine Gaul, where the Gallic tribes were on the verge of rebellion. The Roman aim for the war was to defeat the Carthaginians so thoroughly they would never again be able to pose a threat. 
Achieving this aim would mean stripping Carthage of its empire in Spain, driving the Barsids from power, and not least, amassing as much Punic booty as possible. Hannibal's strategy for the Second Punic War was based on two principles. First, the Carthaginian strategy during the First Punic War, which had been focused on the defense of Sicily, had been far too cautious. Second, the real source of Rome's power was its domination of Italy. Hannibal therefore concluded that he had to invade Italy with his army. By inflicting crushing defeats on the Romans on their home territory, Hannibal could compel the Republic to sue for peace, as well as convince the Italian allies to abandon their allegiance to Rome and join Carthage. With a peace treaty, Hannibal intended to restore Carthage's empire, while simultaneously reducing Rome to a second-ranked power. Carthage would regain Sicily and Sardinia. The Italian states and peoples would be permanently attached to Carthage. But how was Hannibal to reach Italy? The fastest and safest routes by sea were closed to him. The Roman navy was now master of the western Mediterranean. Although the Barsids were belatedly pouring resources into the Carthaginian fleet, Carthage would not be able to challenge Rome for naval supremacy for some time, if ever. Hannibal therefore had no choice but to proceed by land. From this realization flowed one of Hannibal's most famous feats of arms, his march from Spain, across southern Gaul, then over the Alps to Italy. Hannibal's preparations took time. At last, he set out from New Carthage in May or June 218 with his army of 90,000 men and 37 war elephants. His plan was bold, imaginative, and dangerous. The plan required the army to march vast distances and overcome considerable geographical obstacles. The Carthaginians had to find supplies of food, water, and fodder in little-known country. Above all, Hannibal's army would frequently have to fight its way through hostile peoples. Fortunately, Hannibal and his army did not have to face the Romans on their great march. Hannibal had correctly anticipated that the Roman high command would never expect the Carthaginians to make such an aggressive move. The Senate and consuls instead calculated that their enemies would simply passively defend Spain and Africa. They therefore allowed themselves to be taken completely by surprise. The Romans had their first hint of Hannibal's march only in late October. After numerous delays, consul Publius Cornelius Scipio and his consular army were finally en route to Spain. Along the way, Cornelius Scipio put in at the mouth of the Rhone River. The Roman cavalry then encountered some Carthaginian cavalry from Hannibal's army. Hannibal immediately turned away from the Roman consul and disappeared into the wilderness between the Rhone and the foothills of the Italian Alps. An alarmed Publius Cornelius Scipio then ordered his army to proceed to Spain under the command of his brother Gnaeus, an ex-consul. Publius himself doubled back to take charge of the two legions in Casalpine Gaul and wait for Hannibal. The decision to proceed to Spain turned out to be one of the best that the Romans made during the entire war. By continuing with the invasion of Spain, the Scipio brothers ensured that the Barsid stronghold became an active fighting front. Hasdrubal Barca, Hannibal's brother, who had been left in command in Spain, had his hands full fighting the Romans. He was unable to send reinforcements to his older brother. Even more importantly, he was unable to march himself to join Hannibal in Italy until it was much too late. Hannibal and his army reached the Alps in late October 218. Hannibal's crossing of the Alps is the most famous and most myth-shrouded event of the Great March possibly even of the Carthaginian warlord's entire career. 
it has been a frequent subject of art. My favorite representation of it is J.M.W. Turner's painting, Snowstorm, Hannibal and his army crossing the Alps, which was first exhibited in 1812 and now hangs in London's Tate Gallery. In Turner's distinctive, powerful style, a huge snowstorm, a turbulent swirl of black, gray, and blue, blots out the sun and dominates most of the canvas. Beneath it, tiny figures cower, Hannibal's African and Spanish soldiers, struggling in the harsh alien conditions. Turner's magnificent painting reproduces the myth of Hannibal's crossing of the Alps. The Carthaginian army, stumbling through unceasing snow and ice, constantly battling against fierce mountain tribes. The reality was that Hannibal's army made its 15-day journey in the relatively mild conditions of early fall. The Carthaginians only encountered significant snowdrifts at the final pass before its descent. Furthermore, because of careful diplomacy by Hannibal, most of the Alpine tribes were friendly. Instead of attacking, they furnished the Carthaginians with plentiful supplies. Hannibal's troops only had four days or so of serious fighting against inveterately hostile tribesmen. Hannibal arrived in the Po River Valley in northern Italy in early November, around the time of the setting of the Pleiades, Polybius reports. His great march had taken him five and a half months to complete. Even if the final stage in the Alps had not been as bad as it is usually made out to be, the march overall had been very hard and very costly. Along the way, Hannibal had detached large forces in order to garrison places and regions he wished to hold, such as northern Spain, which was added to the Barsid dominions. But far worse, his army had suffered heavy losses from combat, illness, and above all desertion. When Hannibal took account of his army immediately following the descent from the Alps, he found he had just 8,000 Spanish and 12,000 Libyan infantry and 6,000 cavalry. These figures represent just 29% of the 90,000 men that had set out from New Carthage. The 26,000-strong remnant did represent the best of Hannibal's troops, the bravest, toughest, most skilled, and most committed to his cause. Another consolation was that all 37 war elephants had amazingly survived. Hannibal had also arrived in Cisalpine Gaul at an extremely propitious moment. The Romans had only subdued this region, which stretched roughly from the Arno River to the Alps, during the recent war of 225 to 222. The two most powerful tribes of Gauls, the Insubres and the Boii, had risen in a new rebellion. The Gauls now looked to Hannibal as a powerful ally, possibly even a liberator. Friendly tribesmen brought supplies to the Carthaginian camps. More importantly, Gallic warriors began joining Hannibal's army in great numbers. The Gauls were what the Romans called the Celts. Greeks and Romans tended to look down on the Celts as little more than savages. In fact, Celtic civilization was ancient, rich, and sophisticated. In particular, Celtic metalwork was highly advanced. The Romans had adopted their helmets and their chainmail body armor from the Gauls. The Gauls had also likely given the Romans the four-horn saddle. For Hannibal, the Gauls offered a priceless opportunity to replenish his badly depleted ranks with fresh, fearsome fighting men. Roman sources depict Gallic warriors as something akin to ancient Hell's angels. They fought naked, covered only by outlandish tattoos and garish gold jewelry, their long hair limed into spikes, their faces sporting outlandish beards and mustaches, 
brandishing gigantic swords in their hands and screaming wild battle cries like roaring beasts. Warriors in the heroic mold, the Gauls' initial onset was always ferocious and difficult to resist. However, the Gauls lacked the discipline and cohesion to have much staying power. Unless the warriors won quickly, they became easily discouraged and prone to panic. Roman legionaries quickly learned that if they could survive the initial Gallic charge, they would gain the upper hand and begin to inflict heavy casualties on their foes. The warriors now streaming to Hannibal's banners consisted of both cavalry and infantry. Gallic cavalry were close-order, close-combat fighters. Gallic horsemen tended to be drawn from the tribal elite of chiefs and their personal followers. They were therefore the most well-equipped warriors. All had helmets and many had chainmail armor. Their other arms were an oval or rectangular shield, a spear or javelins, and the long Gallic sword. This last weapon had a blade of 90 centimeters or 3 feet or even more in length and frequently lacked a point. Warriors used their swords to deliver slashes and cuts that depended more on brute strength than finesse. Gallic infantry also fought in close order and hand-to-hand. Virtually all Gallic infantry were unarmored, relying entirely on their large shields for protection. All infantry warriors had spears and javelins. Those who could afford it also had the Gallic sword. The Gallic warriors who joined Hannibal's army came under the command of his cadre of veteran Carthaginian officers. These officers would effect a transformation of the Gallic warriors from heroic, unruly tribal fighters into disciplined troops practically indistinguishable from the other contingents of the army. This change would be carried out with surprising rapidity. After all, the Carthaginians were used to Gallic mercenaries. Gauls had been a major part of Carthaginian armies during the First Punic War and even before. More importantly, Hannibal's officers had considerable experience at integrating diverse troops into the command and combat structures of their army. By the Battle of Cannae, the transformation of the Gauls was largely complete. With his army refreshed and replenished, Hannibal began hunting for the Romans. Back in Rome, the Senate had been shocked by Hannibal's appearance in Cisalpine Gaul and had recalled Consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus and his consular army of two legions plus allies from Sicily. Hannibal's invasion of Italy already had one important effect. It spared Carthage's Libyan heartlands from a Roman invasion. Sempronius Longus would take some time to arrive in northern Italy. In the meantime, Consul Publius Cornelius Scipio, with the two legions already in Cisalpine Gaul, crossed the Po River to challenge Hannibal. In early December, at the confluence of the Ticinus and Po Rivers, the Carthaginian and Roman cavalry forces, led by their respective generals, clashed in the first pitch battle of the Second Punic War. Hannibal held the enemy squadrons in front with his Spanish and Gallic horse while sending his swift Numidians racing around the wings then charging into the Roman rear. Attacked from all sides, the Romans broke. Publius Cornelius Scipio himself was badly wounded and, according to Polybius, was only rescued by the bravery of his teenage son, also named Publius. With his cavalry badly mauled, the elder Scipio had to retreat back across the Po to await the arrival of the other Roman consular army. By late December 218, the Carthaginians and Romans were confronting each other from opposite banks of the Trebia River. Sempronius Longus had brought in his consular army, so the Romans now had four legions and their allied units, 
a total of 38,000 foot and 4,000 horse. Polybius reports that Sempronius Longus was overconfident and eager for battle, while Cornelius Scipio advised delay. However, this detail, which helps to excuse Cornelius Scipio from responsibility for the coming disaster, is likely an example of Polybius's notorious bias in favor of the Cornelii dynasty. Following an influx of Gallic warriors, Hannibal's army now had a strength of 28,000 foot and 10,000 horse. Around the winter solstice, December 21st or 22nd, Hannibal decided to bait the Romans into a battle on his terms. The Carthaginian general had carefully studied the ground on his side of the Trebia. On an otherwise flat, featureless plain, he had identified a stream bed in which he could conceal an ambush force. He ordered his younger brother Mago, whom Polybius describes as a youth eager to prove himself in battle, to pick 1,000 Numidian light-armed infantry and 1,000 Numidian cavalry and hide them in the stream bed. The next morning was bitingly cold, and the air was filled with driving sleet. Hannibal instructed the rest of his Numidians to cross the Trebia and threaten to attack the Roman camp. He then ordered the rest of his army to have breakfast, rub themselves with olive oil to protect themselves against the cold, then take up their arms and fall into battle formation. Sempronius Longus took the bait. When the Numidians approached, he woke up his army and ordered it into battle formation. To insistent calls from the Cornu trumpets and bellowed commands from the centurions and tribunes, the Roman legionaries and Italian allies tumbled out of their tents. They staggered out of the camp and to the banks of the Trebia. Then they plunged into the river and began to cross. The icy, chest-deep water would have driven the last traces of slumber out of the Romans and Italians. Once on the other side of the Trebia, at Sempronius Longus's command, the Roman army shook out into its customary battle formation. Citizen legions in the center, flanked by Italian allied infantry, Roman cavalry on the right wing, and Italian allied cavalry on the left. The Romans and Italians were tired, freezing, and soaked to the skin. They were also famished, having not had the chance to eat breakfast. Hannibal had drawn up his army with his Libyan, Spanish, and Gallic infantry in a single line in the center. He divided up his cavalry and his 37 war elephants between his wings. He initiated the battle with his 8,000 skirmishers. The Carthaginian light-armed troops got much the better of the Velites. According to Polybius, the Velites' javelins were soaked and so could not fly far. Still worse, the Romans had no answer to the sling stones of the Balearic islanders. Sempronius Longus withdrew his defeated Velites and ordered his legions to attack. With a great shout and a clashing of weapons on shields, the legionaries advanced. Hannibal drew his light-armed troops back and sent them to the wings to support his horse. The heavy infantry of the Roman and Carthaginian centers collided. What ensued was a long, grinding fight in which neither side could gain an immediate advantage. Meanwhile, the wings came into contact. The Carthaginian cavalry, greatly superior in numbers and quality and also supported by war elephants, made quick work of their enemies. The Roman and Italian cavalry were smashed to pieces. Their remnants ran. The Carthaginian light-armed troops and Numidian cavalry then turned inwards and fell upon the Allied infantry flanking the legionaries. At this moment, Hannibal unleashed Mago's ambush force. His 1,000 Numidian light-armed and 1,000 Numidian cavalry emerged from their concealing stream bed and attacked the Roman army's rear. The Romans and Italians quickly collapsed. 
Yet, in a testament to Roman discipline, determination, and raw combat power, the 10,000 legionaries at the very center of the army managed to punch completely through Hannibal's infantry line. These troops managed to escape from the battlefield, with consuls Sempronius Longus and Cornelius Scipio. The rest of the Roman army was killed, wounded, captured, or scattered. The Battle of the Trebia was the first of Hannibal's famous victories against the Romans. It showed all of the hallmarks of his generalship. The care for his men, the inspired eye for ground, the meticulous preparations, the careful tactical management, and above all, the determination to not just defeat the enemy army, but utterly destroy it. His own losses were comparatively few, and were mainly borne by his new Gallic allies. But a severe winter storm blew up after the battle. The piercing cold and driving snow killed all but one of Hannibal's elephants. Also after the Trebia, Hannibal unveiled a key aspect of his grand strategy. He freed all his Italian prisoners without ransom, and sent them home with a message. He had entered Italy in order to free the Italians from Roman domination, and to restore to the Italians the lands taken from them by the Romans. In this way, he hoped to begin undermining the Roman alliance system, but he also knew he needed to win more victories in the heart of Italy. For the Romans, the defeat at the Battle of the Trebia was a shock. However, they regrouped quickly. For the year 217, the Senate mobilized fresh legions for southern Italy, Sicily, and Sardinia in order to guard against a Carthaginian amphibious attack. The Scipio brothers' campaign in Spain against Hannibal's brother Hasdrubal continued. The defeat of Hannibal in Italy was the Republic's chief military priority. From the beginning of the campaigning season, both consular armies would be sent against him. The Senate instructed the consuls Gaius Flaminius and Gnaeus Servilius Geminus to coordinate carefully so they could crush Hannibal together. Yet the consuls had a serious problem. Which way would Hannibal go? From Cisalpine Gaul, the Carthaginian general was free to move on one side or the other of the Apennines, the mountain chain that ran down the Italian peninsula like a spine. The consuls decided to cover both possibilities. Flaminius positioned himself in the west, at Ariatum in Etruria, while Servilius stood in the east, at Ariminium, near the coast of the Adriatic Sea. The consuls agreed that whichever one of them Hannibal moved against would immediately send word to the other, who would then make directly and with all haste for the Carthaginians. Flaminius and Servilius thus hoped to trap Hannibal between their two armies. In early May, Hannibal mustered his army, now 50,000 strong. One of the hallmarks of his generalship was rapid, unexpected movements. He marched into Etruria, but by an unorthodox route. He crossed the Apennines and then drove his army through the marshes along the upper reaches of the Arno River. The crossing of the marshes was a nightmarish affair. The army slogged through mud and waist-high water for three days and nights. Hannibal, riding on the last elephant, fell seriously ill with ophthalmia. He lost the sight of one eye. But when the Carthaginians emerged from the marshes, they were past Flaminius's army and had only open, unprotected countryside ahead of them. Hannibal's army marched through Etruria, marauding, plundering, and looting as it went. When Flaminius learned that Hannibal had given him the slip, the consul immediately set off in pursuit. Flaminius was a Roman rarity a novus homo, a new man, the first in his family to hold the consulship. 
He had already been consul once before, in 223, when he had scored a victory over the Gauls of the Po River Valley. Flaminius had thoroughly ravaged the lands of the Insubres, an act which earned him the tribe's undying enmity. Roman historians and commentators tended to cast Flaminius as bold and overconfident to the point of rashness. But just as with the depiction of Sempronius Longus at the Trebia, this portrayal of Flaminius served as a means to excuse catastrophe. Roman army commanders were expected to be aggressive, and they were amply rewarded for it. Flaminius and his army therefore trailed closely behind Hannibal. He and his men grew increasingly enraged at the trail of destruction wrought by the Carthaginian marauders. Roman and Italian societies were fundamentally agrarian. The destruction of some of the richest farmland in all of Italy was a hard blow to swallow, and deeply insulting because it suggested that the Romans were too militarily weak to prevent the devastation. However, as the days of pursuit wore on, Flaminius also noted that Hannibal's movements were bringing him closer to Servilius and his consular army. Perhaps the Romans could enact their original plan after all. On June 20th, 217 BCE, Hannibal's army reached Lake Trasimene in central Italy. Here the route ran through a narrow plain between the shore and a line of hills. With his keen eye for ground, Hannibal immediately spotted an opportunity to lay a devastating trap for Flaminius. He slowed his march so that he could be sure that the Roman scouts would see his army cross the plain and camp on the other side. During the night, Hannibal deployed his army in concealed positions all along the hills overlooking the plain and the lake. The most devastating ambush in military history was now set. The next day, June 21st, 217 BCE, a thick mist rose from Lake Trasimene to enshroud the shore and the looming hills. Flaminius and his consular army, 25,000 men in all, were on the road early, eager to resume their pursuit of the Carthaginians. The Romans entered the narrow plain between the hills and the water. Hannibal let them come. His men remained concealed and quiet in their hiding places. The discipline and self-control of the Carthaginian troops were incredible and testified to their superior quality. At last, when the entire Roman army was strung out along the lakeshore below him, Hannibal gave the order to attack. The silence was abruptly broken by shrill trumpet calls and the shouted commands of the Carthaginian officers. These were answered by a chorus of war cries in a dozen tongues, then a cacophony of rushing feet and banging metal, as the Carthaginians poured out of concealment and rushed down on the hapless Romans. The Romans were caught completely unaware in marching formation. Before the legionaries and Italian allies could get into battle order, or even in many cases into their armor, the Carthaginians were among them, hacking, stabbing, killing. Yet incredibly, many Romans fought back. The Roman vanguard of 6,000 legionaries managed to fight its way through the exit out of the plain before Hannibal's troops could block it. Elsewhere, along the length of the trapped, doomed army, Small knots of men formed around an indomitable tribune, centurion, allied prefect, or even veteran legionary. The stoutest resistance of all was around the consul Flaminius. He organized his bodyguards and the Roman legionaries near him, veterans of the Triarii, into some semblance of a combat formation. For three hours, the fight raged in the narrow strip of land wedged between the hills and the water. Yet the issue was never in doubt. The Carthaginians snuffed out each knot of resistance. The Gauls concentrated on the hated Flaminius. 
the ferocious warriors surrounded and tore at his men's improvised shield wall, trying to cut their way through to the consul. At last, according to Livy, an Insubrian horseman who knew the consul by sight, his name was Ducarius, cried out to his countrymen, Here is the man who slew our legions and laid waste our city and our lands. I will offer him in sacrifice to the shades of my foully murdered countrymen. Digging spurs into his horse, he charged into the dense masses of the enemy and slew an armor-bearer who threw himself in the way as he galloped up, lance in rest, and then plunged his lance into the consul. Word of the consul's death sowed panic through the remnants of the Roman army. Most of us cannot even begin to imagine the stomach-churning, bowel-opening terror that now swept through the surviving Romans and Italians. They gave up all remaining thoughts of resistance and instead tried to flee. But the Carthaginians had blocked off all the exits from the plain. The only opening left was the lake. Thousands of Romans and Italians waded out. Many were dragged down by the weight of their armor and drowned. Some went so deep that just their heads remained above the water. A fearful massacre now began. Seeing their enemies helpless and running away, many of the Carthaginian troops now found their own fear transmuted into a joyful murderous bloodlust. They chased after the running men, cutting them down, ignoring their screams for mercy. They splashed out into the lake to slaughter the Romans and Italians cowering in the shallows. Horsemen pushed their mounts into the deeper water to spear and slash at bobbing heads. At first, Hannibal and his officers did nothing to stop the killing. In fact, they encouraged it. They sought not just to defeat the Roman army, but to annihilate it. The massacre only came to an end when the Carthaginians became too physically exhausted and emotionally spent to continue. At last, the Carthaginians began taking prisoners. Prisoners represented the soldiers' chief reward for victory. Captives could be plundered for anything valuable they carried. Yet the most valuable booty were the bodies of the captives themselves. Prisoners could be ransomed back to their families or sold into slavery. Every ancient army was trailed by slave traders who were just waiting for the chance to bid for the defeated. An entire consular army had vanished. 10,000 Romans and allies were killed on land or in the waters of Lake Trasimene. 9,000 more were taken prisoner on the battlefield. Afterward, Hannibal assigned the job of mopping up to the Numidians under Maharbal, his most energetic and resourceful cavalry commander. Maharbal first captured the 6,000 Romans who had initially escaped the trap at the lake. Then a few days after the battle, an even greater prize fell into Maharbal's hands. The consul Servilius had sent his 4,000 cavalry rushing ahead in an attempt to join Flaminius. Maharbal ambushed the Roman horsemen, killing half and capturing the rest. Shorn of his cavalry and hence his ability to locate Hannibal's army, Servilius had no choice except to scurry back to Ariminium. For Hannibal, the victory at Lake Trasimene opened up a tantalizing possibility. His army was just four or five days' march from Rome itself, and no Roman forces stood in its way. In fact, a story that emerged a year after the Trasimene battle has Maharbal begging Hannibal to let him take the Carthaginian cavalry on a dash to Rome. Maharbal's advice had much to recommend it. If Hannibal surrounded Rome, its 90,000 or so inhabitants would soon have begun feeling the effects of starvation and disease. The only available Roman troops were Servilius's army in the northeast and the legion at Tarentum in southern Italy. 
these forces would have been no match for Hannibal's victorious army. With the city blockaded and its people starving, the Roman Republic might have had little choice but to capitulate and come to terms. Hannibal chose to do otherwise. He kept to his strategy of trying to undermine the Roman alliance system. Just as he did after the Battle of the Trebia, Hannibal released his Italian prisoners without ransom, and after announcing to them that he had invaded Italy in order to liberate the Italians from the Roman yoke. Then, from the vicinity of Lake Trasimene, he marched east to the Adriatic coast, and then south to Apulia. All along the way, he and his men ravaged the countryside, taking more loot than they could carry. Hannibal also ordered the execution of all adult males who fell into Carthaginian hands. He intended this ruthless policy to spread the terror of his arms and to further undermine Italian confidence in the Romans' ability to protect them. For Rome, the catastrophe of Lake Trasimene produced a far greater shock than the defeat at the Trebia. It led first to an important change in the government of the Republic. The Roman Republic had evolved precisely to prevent the accumulation of too much power in the hands of one man. This fear of almighty individuals was the reason why the magistracies always existed in multiples. Two consuls, four praetors, two quaestors, and so on. Power was diluted and one officer could check another. But Roman political tradition also recognized that in a moment of extreme danger, supreme power and authority could be vested for a limited time in one special magistrate, a dictator. In the immediate aftermath of Lake Trasimene, at the urging of the Senate, the Comitia Centuriata elected Quintus Fabius Maximus as dictator for a period of six months. Fabius had been consul twice, 233 and 228 and had a reputation as solid and utterly dependable. At once, he took measures to restore Roman confidence. First, he publicly blamed the dead Flaminius for the Trasimene disaster. Flaminius made a handy scapegoat. As a new man, he had no powerful family that could be defamed, nor did he have a faction of supporters who would defend him. More concretely, Fabius immediately raised two new legions and brought Servilius's surviving consular army to Rome. Then, with this new army, perhaps 30,000 strong, Fabius sallied from Rome and went after Hannibal. But if the Romans expected their new dictator to immediately seek another battle against the Carthaginians, they were sorely disappointed. Instead, the Roman army shadowed the enemy, harassing marauders and cutting off stragglers but refusing to fight a pitched battle. These tactics have been dubbed Fabian tactics, and they earned Fabius the nickname of Cunctator, the delayer. The dictator stuck to his methods through the summer of 217, even in the face of a chorus of criticism from the Senate and people of Rome. Hannibal became aware of Fabius's unpopularity, and he tried to exploit it with a cunning ruse. He ostentatiously spared one of Fabius's estates from plunder, hinting to the Romans that he and the dictator were in collusion. Fabius was unruffled. He immediately sold the estate and used the proceeds to ransom Roman captives. Meanwhile, Fabius was waiting for an opportunity to trap the Carthaginians. He seized his chance in September, near Capua in Campania, suddenly rushing ahead of Hannibal. Fabius blocked a key pass and then occupied the surrounding heights. By the time Hannibal found the pass blocked, it was too late for his booty-laden army to turn away. 
The Carthaginians were now surrounded on three sides by Roman forces, and on the fourth side by the sea. Hannibal managed to escape this encirclement thanks to one of his most famous tricks. Taking 2,000 cattle from his army's livestock booty, he had lit torches attached to the unfortunate animal's horns. Hannibal then had picked men from his light-armed troops stampede the cattle up to some heights near the pass. Suspecting a Carthaginian breakout attempt, the Roman troops guarding the pass abandoned their posts in order to investigate. Hannibal's army then marched through the pass completely unscathed. After this attempt to trap Hannibal failed, Fabius reverted to his old tactics of harassment and delay. After Cannae, Fabius would be hailed as the hero who saved Rome through his dogged strategy of delay. At the time of his dictatorship, however, his methods were bitterly opposed by most Romans, who would have preferred another pitched battle against the invaders. Moreover, there is no evidence at all that Fabius himself originally conceived of his strategy as a long-term solution to Hannibal's invincibility on the battlefield. Rather, Fabius believed he was buying time for the Roman Republic to rebuild its strength and regain its confidence before having another go at the Carthaginian warlord. At the end of his six-month term of office, Fabius gave up the dictatorship and quietly returned to civilian life, taking his strategy with him. The Romans had wanted a battle, and now they were going to get it. In just the space of six months, Rome had suffered two catastrophes that would have shattered many other ancient civilizations, yet now the stage was set for the greatest disaster that the Republic would ever face. In 216 BCE, the third year of the Second Punic War, the Roman Republic made a maximum effort. No less than 15 legions took the field, two legions for the Scipios in Spain, two to put down the rebellious tribes in Cisalpine Gaul, two, the Legiones Urbani, to garrison Rome, and one legion of marines at Ostia for the fleet. But the centerpiece of the Roman war effort were two double-strength consular armies, eight legions. Moreover, each legion was supersized to a strength of 5,000 men each, with the addition of 500 more heavy infantry. In total, there would be 40,000 Roman legionaries. The Italian allies were prevailed upon to contribute an equal number of infantry. Along with 6,000 cavalry, the whole force totaled 86,000 men, easily the largest army in the Republic's history. The target for this imposing armament was Hannibal Barca. The Senate's orders to the consuls were simple, bring Hannibal's army to battle and destroy the Carthaginians with overwhelming force. The consuls were to operate their armies together as a single force from the very beginning of the campaign. Following Roman custom, they were to take daily turns commanding the army. Both consuls willingly accepted these orders. Otherwise, they were very different men. Lucius Aemilius Paulus was a scion of one of Rome's greatest aristocratic dynasties. He was also the grandfather of Scipio Aemilianus, the patron of Polybius. Paulus therefore gets very favorable treatment from Polybius. Our Greek historian portrays Paulus as energetic, sensible, and courageous. He was also an experienced commander, having held the consulship in 219 BCE and successfully campaigned in the Balkans. The other consul was Gaius Terentius Varro, and he was a novus homo, a new man, the first person in his family to hold the consulship. The Roman historian Livy is snobbishly contemptuous of Varro, dismissing his background as not merely humble but sordid. Varro's father was, according to Livy, a butcher. 
and Varro himself worked in the trade in his youth. Modern historians completely reject this charge as baseless slander, pointing out that Varro needed to be extremely wealthy and socially respectable in order to even embark on a political career. Furthermore, Varro must have been an exceptionally capable politician as well as a strong-willed personality in order to win election in one of the most crucial years in the Republic's history. However, because Varro had never held either a consulship or a praetorship before, he had no experience commanding an army. Polybius and all the other ancient sources treat Varro as the scapegoat for the Cannae disaster. They condemn him as dangerously inexperienced and overly aggressive. But this scapegoating of Varro smacks as special pleading in favor of Paulus. The Aemilii, Paulus's family, remained powerful into the last days of the Republic, and they managed to shift the blame for Cannae onto Varro. In fact, there is no evidence to show that Varro was a disastrously incompetent commander. Furthermore, there is equally no evidence that Paulus was a more skillful general, despite his previous experience as a consul. Varro and Paulus were utterly typical Roman commanders. At this stage of the Second Punic War, the principal qualities expected of Roman commanders were still physical courage and leadership. Skills at generalship were secondary. Neither Varro nor Paulus was prepared to control such a huge army. This huge army varied tremendously in quality. Two legions were from the old consular army of Servilius Geminus, and two more had been originally raised by the dictator Fabius Maximus. The troops in these legions had recent combat experience, and they were familiar with each other as well as their officers. They were therefore the best troops in the army. However, their service so far had been marked by defeat at the hands of Hannibal and his Carthaginians. The other four legions were freshly raised. Most of their legionaries lacked previous fighting experience. Moreover, they had never served alongside their comrades, nor did they know their officers well. But the weakest element of the Roman Grand Army was its cavalry. In the battles of 218 and 217, the Roman cavalry had been savagely mauled by the Carthaginians. The wealthy Roman citizens who served in the cavalry had suffered disproportionately heavy losses there were simply not enough of them remaining to give the great army a respectable mounted force. Moreover, the troopers themselves were less skilled and less experienced than before. The Italian allies were suffering from similar problems. Therefore, the Roman Grand Army's cavalry was seriously outclassed both in numbers and skill by Hannibal's horsemen. Despite the army's deficiencies, Roman morale was astonishingly high. Rather than being discouraged by the defeats at Trebia and Trasimene, the Roman legionaries and Italian allies were animated by a grim determination to defeat the Carthaginian invaders at last. According to Livy, the army's determination was captured by a formal oath that the military tribunes administered to their men, never to leave the ranks because of fear or to run away, but only to retrieve or grab a weapon, to kill an enemy, or to rescue a comrade. The Roman Grand Army was also reinforced by an influx of senators and high-ranking aristocrats. A third of the Senate were personally present with the army at Cannae, and all of the remaining senators had sons or close relatives fighting in the legions. For our purposes, the most noteworthy Roman aristocrat serving with the Grand Army was the younger Publius Cornelius Scipio, who was a military tribune in one of the legions. We first met young Scipio when he saved his consul father and namesake from the Carthaginian cavalry at the clash on the Ticinus River. Now 19 years old, 
Scipio had already made a career of surviving Hannibalic disasters. After his feats at the Ticinus, he had escaped from the Trebia, then survived the slaughter at Trasimene. His fourth encounter with Hannibal would see his powers of survival pushed to their limits. The four fresh legions took a very long time to recruit, organize, and drill. Only sometime in July 216 BCE did the Roman Grand Army finally set out to seek battle with Hannibal. The army was huge, its soldiers and officers brave, enthusiastic, and determined to win, but the army was too inexperienced and too variable in quality to have much cohesion or flexibility. In the end, the Roman Grand Army was only capable of the simplest maneuvers and tactics. This would prove to be an enormous disadvantage when facing Hannibal and his army of veterans. As for Hannibal, he also badly needed a battle. Dazzled by the victories at Trebia and Trasimene, we have tended to overlook just how Hannibal's strategy remained poised on a razor's edge between disaster and triumph. On the one hand, despite brilliantly winning two great battles, Hannibal had still not managed to convince any of the Italian allies from breaking their allegiances to Rome. In addition, while his army had proved itself utterly formidable in battle, it was now marooned deep within enemy territory. The closest friendly base, Cisalpine Gaul, was far away and on the other side of the Roman heartland. A serious defeat of his army would thus spell the end of Hannibal's campaign. On the other hand, a third victory over the Romans might finally convince the Italians they would be better off joining Hannibal. Moreover, a resoundingly crushing victory might persuade the Romans themselves of the futility of continuing the war and therefore compel them to make peace with Hannibal. Hannibal and his army had spent the winter in and around the town of Gerunium in Apulia in southern Italy. According to Polybius, he moved out of Gerunium around the time when the crops had sufficiently ripened to be harvested by his soldiers. Modern historians estimate this time to be early June 216 BCE. He marched south for about 100 kilometers until he reached the hilltop town of Cannae, which he stormed and took. Cannae happened to be the site of a major Roman supply depot. The captured supplies enabled Hannibal to feed his army without having to move and forage. More importantly, Hannibal identified Cannae as the ideal site for a decisive showdown against the Romans. Spreading north from the foot of the hill of Cannae was a broad plain bisected by a river, the Aufidus, today called the Afanto, which flowed roughly from west to east until it emptied into the Adriatic Sea about seven kilometers away. The flat, open terrain was perfect for the Carthaginian cavalry. The hill of Cannae also provided an excellent lookout to watch for the Roman army coming down from the north. Hannibal spent the rest of June and most of July simply waiting for the Romans to come to him. The Roman Grand Army finally arrived in the last week of July. The first sign of the Romans' approach was a brown and yellow dust cloud smudging the northern horizon. The pall of dust thickened and rose high into the hot, still summer air. Then the marching columns became visible, rank after rank of legionaries filling the plain. Bright sunlight glinted off javelins, helmets, and the bosses of Scuta. A din of marching feet, trumpet calls, and shouted commands and curses would have reached the Carthaginians' ears. The largest army in Roman history would have been a fearful sight to most onlookers, but Hannibal and his veterans were not intimidated. They were looking forward to a battle. The Roman commanders had orders to fight. However, the consuls Varro and Paulus now fell into a heated debate about when and where this battle should take place. 
It was at this stage, in the days leading up to the Battle of Cannae, that Polybius contrasts Varro's rashness with Paulus's prudence. Varro wanted to fight immediately on the open plain. Paulus feared the Carthaginians' vastly superior cavalry. He therefore urged the Romans to fight on rough ground, unsuitable for horses, and at a place where the army's flanks could be protected. Yet Varro's so-called rashness was fully in keeping with the aggressiveness that the Romans expected of their commanders. In addition, Paulus's advice was problematic. The Roman army was simply too large, too inflexible, and too clumsy to outmaneuver Hannibal's much more agile army and force the Carthaginians to fight on ground of Paulus's choosing. During the four days leading up to the battle, the Romans and the Carthaginians played an intricate cat-and-mouse game for advantage. The Romans first closed on Hannibal's army. They built a main camp on the north bank of the Aufidus, just across the river from Hannibal's camp on the hill of Cannae. Later, under Paulus's command, the Romans sent a third of their army across to the south bank of the Aufidus to erect a secondary camp about 1.5 kilometers away from the Carthaginians. Paulus meant this move to demonstrate Roman aggression and determination. Hannibal responded with aggressive moves of his own. He abandoned his position on the hill of Cannae, crossed the Aufidus with his entire army, and camped close to the main Roman camp. On August 1st, Hannibal deployed his army in battle formation on the open plain on the north bank of the Aufidus. Paulus was again in command. He judged the terrain was too favorable for Hannibal's horsemen. The Romans therefore declined to take the bait and remained in their camps. Hannibal kept his men in battle formation all day and also sent his Numidian cavalrymen back across the Aufidus to harass the smaller Roman camp. All of this jockeying was meant to bolster the morale of the troops and build up their eagerness for battle, while at the same time intimidating the enemy. Polybius notes that by August 1st, the enthusiasm of the Roman troops had reached a fever pitch. They now wished to get the battle over with as soon as possible. In addition, they felt humiliated at Paulus's refusal to accept Hannibal's challenge. The next day, August 2nd, Varro took his turn in command. At first light, he displayed his vexillum, the red square flag symbolizing his rank, in front of his tent, the traditional signal for Romans to prepare for battle. The ancient sources stress that Varro made the decision to bring on a battle alone. Livy goes even further, writing that Varro led his legions out of the main Roman camp without first informing his fellow consul. Paulus then had no choice but to follow. But this accusation does not stand up to close scrutiny. In fact, Paulus had good reason to concur with Varro's decision. The day before, Paulus had refused Hannibal's invitation to battle because the Carthaginians had chosen to fight on the open plain north of the Aufidus, excellent ground for cavalry. On August 2nd, Varro brought the whole Roman army across the Aufidus to the southern bank. Though the plain was equally flat and featureless there, the location gave the Romans two advantages. The first advantage was derived from the narrowness of the plain, which was bounded on one side by the steep hill of Cannae and on the other by the Aufidus River. The Roman army could deploy with both its flanks resting securely on impassable terrain, anchored in military parlance, and thus protected from outflanking moves by the Carthaginian cavalry. Anchoring the flanks had been one of Paulus's preconditions for the Romans to give battle. The second advantage was that the plain lacked cover of any kind, which seemingly robbed Hannibal of an opportunity to stage an ambush. The Romans were planning to draw Hannibal into a straightforward stand-up fight. 
and the Romans planned to win this fight in the most direct and brutal fashion. The Grand Army deployed in the time-honored manner. Citizen legions in the center, flanked by allied Italian infantry, the Roman and Italian cavalry divided between the wings. But the Roman commanders then made two crucial changes to the triplex Achaeus, the standard triple-line battle formation of the legions. First, Polybius notes that the maniples were formed many times deeper than wide. The Astati and Principes maniples were usually drawn up as shallow rectangles, 20 men wide and 6 men deep. At Cannae, these maniples were instead most likely formed into deep columns, just 5 men wide and 29 men deep. The smaller Triarii maniples were 5 men wide and 12 deep. The Roman center was therefore about 70 ranks deep in total. These deep formations had significant drawbacks for how the Romans fought. Because only the front rankers could use their swords effectively, the narrow, deep columns drastically reduced the number of legionaries in each maniple who could engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. In addition, just the first eight ranks of the formation could hurl their pila without worrying about the risk of hitting their own comrades. But the columns also offered compensating advantages. A column was much easier for officers to hold together and to keep moving given the lack of training and experience of so many of the legionaries at Cannae, the handiness and mobility of the column were important advantages. But the greatest advantage of the column was its phenomenal staying power in combat. Having so many comrades in close proximity helped to sustain the morale of all the legionaries in the formation. With so many ranks behind them, the front rankers found it much harder to run away. In other words, the column essentially forced them to fight and many more soldiers were available to replace killed or wounded front rankers. In some, the columns made the Roman legionaries difficult, if not impossible, to defeat by a straightforward frontal attack. The second major change that the Roman commanders made to the triplex Achaeus formation was to pack the maniples much more closely together by drastically reducing the intervals between each maniple. By cramming the maniples so tightly, the Romans surrendered much of the inherent tactical flexibility of the legions. With the gaps between the maniples almost eliminated, the multiple lines of the triplex Achaeus could no longer easily shift positions, according to circumstances. But the tight packing allowed the Romans to concentrate a huge number of men on a very narrow frontage. 70,000 legionaries crammed into the center of the Roman army. These changes essentially transformed the Roman center into an enormous battering ram meant to smash straight through the enemy army. Adrian Goldsworthy concludes that the Roman plan for the battle was simple and unsubtle, but not unreasonable or by any means doomed to failure. At the Trebia, the Roman center of 10,000 legionaries had punched right through the middle of Hannibal's army, even after the Roman wings had collapsed. At Lake Trasimene, the 6,000-strong Roman vanguard had similarly broken through the force that Hannibal had deployed to block the Roman army's advance. At Cannae, the Romans hoped to repeat these feats, only this time on purpose and on a far more massive scale. The plan's brutal simplicity maximized the Roman Grand Army's main strength of huge numbers of tough legionaries while minimizing its chief weakness of lack of flexibility and agility. Yet for the Roman plan to succeed, the cavalry on the wings had to perform successfully against their greatly superior Carthaginian counterparts. The 2,400 Roman horse were deployed on the right, the 3,600 Italians on the left. 
the Roman and Italian cavalry had compiled a miserable record of defeats during the war so far, and Cannae probably marked the lowest point in terms of the cavalry's effectiveness as well as morale. However, all that the Roman and Italian cavalrymen had to do at Cannae was to hold their positions and prevent the Carthaginian cavalry from attacking the Roman center until the legionaries overwhelmed Hannibal's infantry. Furthermore, the Roman horse on the right were protected by the Aufidus River, the Italian horse on the left by the hill of Cannae. The enemy cavalry would have no choice except to charge the Romans and Italians frontally. The Roman commanders recognized that the cavalry wings were their points of maximum vulnerability. As a result, the consuls personally took charge of the horsemen in order to bolster their morale and resilience, Paulus, the Roman citizen cavalry, and Varro, the Italian allies. The Roman center was led by Servilius Geminus, who had served as consul alongside the unfortunate Flaminius in 217 BCE. Servilius was assisted by a very large number of senior officers in the persons of the military tribunes of the citizen legions and the prefects of the allied units. Not all of the Roman army had deployed for battle on the south bank of the Aufidus. 10,000 infantrymen were left just outside the main camp. According to Polybius, this force was Paulus's idea, which helps to contradict the notion that he did not want to battle as much as Varro. The intention was to pose a threat to Hannibal's camp. If the opportunity arose, this force was to storm the enemy encampment and capture the Carthaginian baggage train. After the long years of campaigning on enemy territory, everything the Carthaginian soldiers owned was in the baggage train. The loss of his soldiers' property, along with the army's equipment, supplies, and camp followers, would have been fatal for Hannibal. The only way he could avoid such a blow would be to win an overwhelming victory. Hannibal immediately took up the gauntlet thrown down by Varro and Paulus. The Carthaginian warlord ordered his entire army to cross the Aufidus to the south bank and deploy for battle. Hannibal's veterans were confident and enthusiastic. Africans, Spaniards, and Gauls had all carefully prepared for combat, honing their weapons, polishing their armor, decorating their uniforms with bright ribbons and colorful plumes. They were dressed to kill. But as the Carthaginian officers watched the massive Roman army engulfing the plain, some of them began to have misgivings. One officer by the name of Gizgo turned to Hannibal and worriedly confessed that he was amazed at the Romans' stupendous numbers. For a long moment, Hannibal looked grave. Then he said, You've missed something even more amazing, Gizgo. What is it, Hannibal? Gizgo replied. It is the fact, Hannibal said, that out of all that multitude of men, no one is named Gizgo. Hannibal's staff burst into laughter, their misgivings instantly dispelled. The Carthaginian army numbered 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. Hannibal deployed these troops carefully. He sent forward his 8,000 light-armed skirmishers. They first screened the deployment of the rest of the army. Then they were to open the battle by engaging the Roman counterparts, the Velites. Hannibal massed his 7,000-strong Spanish and Gallic cavalry on his left wing, opposite the Roman citizen cavalry. He placed his 3,000 Numidian light cavalry on his right wing, facing the Italian allied cavalry. Between the cavalry wings, Hannibal formed up his infantry. His 20,000 Gauls and 4,000 Spaniards were ranged in a single line, confronting the massed columns of Roman legionaries and Italian allied infantry. Hannibal then made two ingenious moves to bolster this thin line against the coming Roman onslaught. 
His first move was to divide his 8,000 Libyans, his most dependable and disciplined troops, into two columns and place one column just behind each end of the line of Spaniards and Gauls. Hannibal's second move was to advance the center of his Gallic Spanish main line so that it bulged toward the enemy. From above, Hannibal's center had been transformed into a great wedge with its tip pointing at the very middle of the Roman army. Hannibal had come up with a bold and ingenious plan specifically designed to counter the Romans' brute force approach. Hannibal was tempting the Romans to focus their attack on the very tip of the arc now formed by his Spanish and Gallic center. As the tip was inevitably forced back, the Romans would funnel more and more men into the middle of the battlefield. Eventually, the mass of Romans would pass the two Libyan columns, thus making themselves vulnerable to flank attacks. While all of this was happening, the Carthaginian cavalry would be disposing of the enemy horse. Once this was done, they could fall upon the Roman legions from behind. Hannibal was essentially creating an ambush in open ground, but his plan was also incredibly risky. No matter how valiantly and tenaciously the Gauls and Spaniards fought, they would be unable to stop the Roman infantry juggernaut. It would only be a matter of time before the Romans and Italians broke through the Carthaginian center. Hannibal was betting that his Libyans and his cavalry could come to the rescue of the Gauls and the Spaniards before they were completely overwhelmed and overrun by the legions. At stake in Hannibal's wager was the survival of his army and thus Carthage's best chance for winning the Second Punic War. How and when did Hannibal come up with his plan? The concentration of his heavy cavalry on the left wing, the positioning of the Libyan columns, and the advance of his center until it formed an arc were all tailored for the specific situation that Hannibal faced on August 2nd. There was simply no reason for him to draw up his army in this way when he invited the Romans to fight on the open plain north of the Aufidus on the previous day. An intriguing possibility was that Hannibal had observed Roman officers studying their chosen battleground, then guessed their intentions and plans. But the answer that I prefer is that Hannibal formulated his plan only after he saw Varro lead his legions out of the Roman main camp and begin crossing to the south bank of the Aufidus. The Carthaginian warlord then rushed to brief his army. After two years of hard and successful campaigning, Hannibal's officers and troops were now so experienced and skillful, they instantly grasped their roles in the coming fight. The various Punic contingents smoothly arranged themselves into their army's complex formation in the time it took the Roman Grand Army to deploy. Just like the Roman consuls, Hannibal positioned himself at his army's point of maximum danger. He assumed personal command of the Gauls and Spaniards in the Carthaginian center. Hannibal was assisted there by his brother Mago, whom he last saw leading the ambush at the Trebia River. The all-important left wing of Gallic and Spanish heavy cavalry was under the command of Hasdrubal, who was the Carthaginian army's quartermaster. In modern armies, a quartermaster is an officer in charge of supplies. We might therefore be tempted to think of Hasdrubal as some sort of desk-bound pencil pusher. In fact, as quartermaster, Hasdrubal was charged with the Carthaginian army's foraging and marauding operations. In this role, he was constantly engaged in vicious, small-scale fighting against Roman troops. Therefore, Hasdrubal was one of Hannibal's most experienced, most successful, and most dependable combat leaders. The right wing of Numidian horsemen was entrusted to the irrepressible Maharbal, who had conducted the devastating pursuit and follow-up operations after Lake Trasimene. The deployment of the two armies took several hours. 
when completed, almost 130,000 men were crammed into an area about two kilometers wide by two kilometers deep. The weather would have been dry and hot. Summer temperatures in Apulia regularly reached 30 centigrade. Brown and ochre dust kicked up by tramping feet and hooves was already blotting the air. The fighting was begun as usual by the light-armed troops. The Carthaginian skirmishers and the Roman velites rushed at each other to hurl javelins and loose sling bullets. The Romans should have won this phase of the battle. There were as many as 20,000 velites facing no more than 8,000 Carthaginian light-armed troops. The Romans were not victorious for two reasons. First, the compressed battlefield prevented the velites from fully using their overwhelming numbers. Second, and more importantly, Hannibal's skirmishers were far superior in quality and motivation to the Velites. The Numidian, Spanish, and Balearic light-armed troops were professional veterans, while the Romans and Italians were the youngest, most inexperienced troops in the Grand Army. The clash of the skirmishers was a draw. Hannibal and the Roman consuls then withdrew their light-armed troops to take station behind their heavy infantry. As soon as the light-armed troops were out of the way, Hasdrubal led his Spanish and Gallic cavalry in a furious headlong charge at the Roman cavalry. Normally, battles between cavalry were highly dynamic, fluid affairs, with both sides exchanging sequences of charges and countercharges. Nothing like this happened at Cannae. Instead, the Romans appeared to have waited largely motionless for Hasdrubal's onslaught. The Carthaginian horsemen carved their way into the Roman mass. The Gauls and Spaniards heavily outnumbered their enemies, and they were also better motivated and much more confident. At the height of the melee, many of the Romans dismounted to fight on foot. This was a desperate move, because the main advantages of cavalry were mobility and height. According to the 1st century CE Greek writer Plutarch, Hannibal saw the Romans dismounting, and quipped that they might as well have handed themselves over to him in chains. Despite the Roman cavalry's desperate resistance, they soon broke and dissolved into rout. Consul Paulus and his surviving staff escaped, riding off to join the legionaries at the center of the Roman line. The Gauls and Spaniards chased after the fleeing Romans, cutting down many of the fugitives. But Hasdrubal did not allow the pursuit to go very far. Soon he had his cavalry reformed and rested. The fighting on the opposite wing, where the Numidians faced the Italian allied cavalry, was far less dramatic. The Numidians employed their standard tactic of rushing in squadrons at the enemy to hurl javelins then withdrawing. Consul Varro and the Italians made no effort to drive the Numidians away. After all, they were accomplishing their mission of holding their position and guarding the flanks of the Roman and Italian infantry. At the same time as Hasdrubal's Gauls and Spaniards were disposing of the Roman cavalry, the Roman center began its ponderous advance. The cornicens sounded their trumpets, the centurions barked out their orders, the legionaries picked up their heavy shields and began marching slowly forward. The maniples in their packed columns lumbered over the kilometer or so of open ground separating the two armies. Rusty clouds of thick dust swirled in the hot, gusting wind. As the Romans and Italians drew closer to their foes, they began yelling their war cries and clashing their pila on their shields. Servilius Geminus, the legionary tribunes, and the allied prefects were marching near the front, shouting words of encouragement to their men. The Gauls and Spaniards waited for the Roman onset, but they too raised their war cries and clashed their weapons on their shields. In addition, though the Gauls were now as well-disciplined as the other troops in Hannibal's army, 
they still retained the warrior traditions of their tribes. So they blew their karniks, their tall, animal-headed bronze horns that played a particularly harsh and braying music. Out of the Gallic ranks raced bare-chested champions who gestured wildly with their weapons and screamed insults and challenges at the oncoming legionaries. When the infantry lines were 30 meters away, the Carthaginians and Romans began flinging their javelins. Thousands of missiles now arced through the air. Most fell short or thudded harmlessly into shields, but as the range closed, more and more javelins punched through shields and armor. Shrieks from wounded and dying men now added to the already deafening cacophony. The seemingly endless rain of javelins brought home to the Carthaginian and Roman troops that they were facing mortal danger. The Roman advance ground to a halt mere meters away from the Gauls and Spaniards. The majority of the men in both lines crouched behind their shields, their first thoughts of self-preservation. But now the large numbers of Roman officers came into their own. The centurions, tribunes, and prefects bellowed and shouted, encouraging and organizing the legionaries to charge forward and into combat. Perhaps these officers had now been joined by the consul Paulus. According to Polybius, he was everywhere among the legionaries, urging them forward, singling out brave men for praise, mustering local charges, and even personally engaging in hand-to-hand combat. Here and there at first, then everywhere along the Roman line, groups of legionaries drove across the last few meters of no man's land and threw themselves into the enemy. The ancient sources all note that the Spanish and Gallic infantry fought with great tenacity and courage. The Carthaginian officers were just as active as their Roman counterparts in encouraging their men and marshalling the defense. Hannibal and Mago were in the very midst of the fighting. Yet the pressure from the tidal waves of legionaries was too much even for Hannibal's veterans to hold back. Slowly, the Carthaginian center gave ground. The original wedge became shallower and shallower until it was transformed altogether into a straight line. The fighting now reached the Gauls and Spaniards, who had initially been echeloned back along the sides of the wedge. But the greatest pressure was still felt in the very middle of the Carthaginian formation, which had been hit by the Romans first. There, whenever the Romans gained ground, their officers pushed reinforcements from their second and even their third line forward to exploit the advantage and increase the stress on the enemy. As Hannibal had expected, more and more Romans and Italians were being funneled into the middle of the field. There the columns of Hastati, Principes, and Triarii fused together into an undifferentiated, furiously struggling mass. The majority of the Romans, and even the Carthaginians, were not at this point actually engaged in the hand-to-hand fighting at the front. Their experience of the battle was limited to snatched glimpses of the furious combat ahead and to a wild confusion of noise. Their feelings must have oscillated wildly between ecstatic bravery and numbing fear. The combination must have been incredibly disorienting. Many were only kept moving in the right direction because of the press of the crowd all around them. As the unstoppable Roman juggernaut rolled forward, the Carthaginians retreated faster and faster. Their straight line first buckled, then bowed backwards deeper and deeper. At last, the Gauls and Spaniards, in the very middle of the Carthaginian formation, had enough. They broke and ran. The Romans shouted in triumph and pursued, striking down every Gaul and Spaniard they could catch. Servilius Geminus and Aemilius Paulus poured their remaining reserves into the breach. Victory for the Romans seemed to be at hand. Yet the remaining parts of Hannibal's plan now came into action. 
As they funneled into the middle of the battlefield, the Romans had bypassed the two columns of Libyan infantry on either end of the Gallic-Spanish line. These two blocks of well-disciplined infantry now turned inward and charged into the flanks of the Roman mass. The Libyans' intervention halted the Romans in their tracks. The Roman officers frantically tried to marshal their men to face this new and unexpected threat. Then came their nemesis. From behind the Romans, out of the swirling dust, charged 7,000 screaming Gallic and Spanish horsemen. After destroying the Roman cavalry, Hasdrubal had reorganized and rested his heavy horse. Once they were ready, he had led them across the battlefield behind the Roman center, straight at the Italian cavalry. Because of the dust, the consul Varro did not see them coming. The Gallic and Spanish cavalry swept away the surprised Italians and drove them off en route. Maharbal took up the chase. His Numidians were the finest horsemen in the ancient world in pursuit, and they harried the Italians to destruction. Hasdrubal now completed his already astonishing performance, one of the best ever of any cavalry commander in history, by once again rallying his men, then leading them into the exposed and unprotected rear of the Roman legions. The Spanish and Gallic cavalry took the Romans completely by surprise. The rear of the Roman center was occupied by the Velites, who had withdrawn behind the legionary heavy infantry after their indecisive skirmishing with Hannibal's light-armed troops. These young and inexperienced, barely trained and unarmored troops could hardly face the terrifying horsemen bearing down on them. They stampeded forward, crashing into the legionaries in front and pressing them even more tightly together. Meanwhile, Hannibal and Mago rallied the Gallic and Spanish foot and led them back against the legionaries. The Roman Grand Army was now trapped on all sides. To their front were the vengeful Gauls and Spaniards, on their flanks were the serried ranks of the Libyans, and behind them rampaged Hasdrubal's horsemen. Hannibal had gambled that he could spring his ambush before the Romans could break through his center and irretrievably shatter his army. His gamble had paid off. Indeed, for the Romans, their breakthrough had only made matters worse by funneling their last reserves into the middle of the field. No Romans and Italians who could still put up a fight were left outside the Carthaginian ring. Most accounts of Cannae abruptly break off at this point. All the moves were complete and the Roman army was doomed. Above all, Hannibal had demonstrated that he was one of the greatest military geniuses in history. But most of the fighting at Cannae still needed to be done. It would continue, according to many ancient sources, until sunset. Inside the Carthaginian ring were 60,000 or more Romans. How could so many men have been slaughtered? This question is of more than just morbidly prurient interest. In fact, the question touches on the issue that lies at the very heart of all great battles, the human will to violence. By the end of the day at Cannae, 50,000 Romans had been killed. I struggle to find any historical equivalents for such carnage. The Roman dead are two and a half times more numerous than the British dead on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the blackest day in the history of the British army and a lingering trauma in British national memory. The Roman dead matched the combined French and Russian dead at the 1812 Battle of Borodino, the bloodiest battle of the Napoleonic Wars. And the Roman dead equaled the total casualties, killed, wounded, missing, and prisoners of the Union and Confederate armies at the three-day Battle of Gettysburg, still the costliest battle in American history. The sheer physical compression of the killing is another indelible detail of Cannae. 
the great majority of the Romans died in a space measuring less than a square kilometer. 20th century battles with huge armies spread over vast fronts offer no parallels. The 20,000 British dead at the Battle of the Somme were scattered over 25 kilometers of the Western Front. The closest comparison I can think of to the claustrophobic slaughter of Cannae is the Battle of Agincourt of October 1415. There, up to 12,000 French knights and men-at-arms were butchered by the English in a muddy field perhaps half a kilometer wide by a few hundred meters deep. The medieval chroniclers tell us that bodies carpeted the ground, and even more horrifically, piled up in mounds two meters high. Something similar must have happened at Cannae. What I find most horrifying about Cannae is how the killing was done. Today, warfare is ever more impersonal and automated. A man or woman, sitting in a climate-controlled bunker, presses a button, and thousands of miles away, a robot orbiting at 30,000 meters fires a missile that obliterates a target far below. At Kanai, the killing was intimately personal and done by hand. The vast majority of Romans were killed by Libyans, Spaniards, or Gauls who came close enough to their victims to smell their fear and hear their pleas for mercy, then stabbed, hacked, bludgeoned, or throttled them to death. These killings happened at a horrific rate. The ancient military historian Victor Davis Hansen has calculated that if Cannae lasted for eight hours, then 100 Romans were killed every minute. But even this horrific rate is not entirely accurate, as the massacre of the legions was concentrated in the battle's middle and final hours. After the Carthaginians completed the encirclement of the Romans, Hannibal, Mago, Hasdrubal, and the other Carthaginian officers marshaled their troops and had them launch attack after attack into the trapped Roman mass. Additionally, the Carthaginian light-armed troops kept up a constant bombardment. So many Romans and Italians were pressed together that the Carthaginians' javelins and sling bullets could hardly miss. What emotions did the Carthaginian soldiers feel as they went about their butchery? Hannibal's men were hardened veterans. Most would have treated killing just as a job to be done as quickly and efficiently as possible. They grimly pressed on, their shields and the breasts of their horses coated in blood and gore. But I cannot help but think that for many of Hannibal's men, killing the Romans filled them with joy and excitement. Their own anxieties and fears for their safety had been transmuted into bloodlust. They killed in a berserk frenzy. Afterward, they would remember Cannae as a high point of their lives, proudly recounting it to their kith and kin. The Romans could not mount an organized response against Hannibal's murderous onslaughts. Their officers were trapped with their men and could no longer effectively command them. The Romans and Italians were so crowded together they could not form a coherent defensive line. Many in the middle of the congestion could not even use their weapons effectively. Nevertheless, a lot of Romans resisted bravely, just as they had in the similarly hopeless situation at Trasimene. Many of these Romans fought to the death, selling their lives dearly. The most determined and enterprising Romans found ways to break out of the Carthaginian trap. Hannibal had too few troops to maintain a solid, unbroken ring around the Romans. Throughout the day, a steady trickle of Roman fugitives escaped the killing field. The Carthaginians let them go. After all, there was plenty of easier prey. Among the escapees would have been the young Publius Cornelius Scipio. He escaped his fourth Hannibalic massacre and lived to exact revenge on Hannibal and Carthage. But the majority of the Romans and Italians 
seem to have simply stood where they were, unresisting until they were killed. Former U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and psychologist David Grossman describes how, unable to flee and unable to overcome the dangers through a brief burst of fighting, posturing, or submission, the bodies of modern soldiers quickly exhaust their capacity to energize, and they slide into a state of profound physical and emotional exhaustion of such a magnitude and dimension that it appears to be almost impossible to communicate it to those who have not experienced it. Something similar happened to the Romans and Italians at Cannae. These men became so overwhelmed by the hopelessness of their situation, they collapsed into an apathy and listlessness so total they were unable even to save themselves. As the hours wore on, they also would have been stupefied by the heat and by thirst. The Romans were completely cut off from access to water. Finally, many of the Romans trapped in the middle of the crowd would not have seen their assailants until the very moment when the Carthaginians were upon them, dealing the blows that killed them. Killing by hand was incredibly tiring, both physically and emotionally. Very early in the annihilation of the legions, Hannibal and his officers would have set up a rotation so that some of their men could rest, even going down to the nearby Aufidus for water to slake their thirst. Meanwhile, others took up the work of massacre. Eventually, exhaustion would have set in for the whole Carthaginian army. The rest periods would have needed to become more frequent, the intervals between attacks more prolonged. Moreover, the sheer number of dead Romans and Italians, strewn on the ground and even piled up in mounds, became an increasingly insurmountable obstacle. At last, the killing sputtered to a halt. Hannibal ordered any surviving Romans and Italians taken prisoner. Some 4,500 were made captive on the battlefield. When the carnage at Cannae finally came to an end, what was left was a scene of unparalleled horror. The Roman historian Livy has left a description of the killing field that even two millennia later cannot be matched for its vividness and immediacy. The next day, as soon as it grew light, the Carthaginians set about gathering the spoils on the field and viewing the carnage, which was a ghastly sight, even for an enemy. There, all those thousands of Romans were lying, infantry and cavalry, indiscriminately, as chance had brought them together in the battle or the flight. Some covered with blood raised themselves from amongst the dead around them, tortured by their wounds, which were nipped by the cold of the morning, and were promptly put an end to by the enemy. Some they found lying with their thighs and knees gashed, but still alive. These bared their throats and necks, and bade them drain what blood they still had left. Some were discovered with their heads buried in the earth. They had evidently suffocated themselves by making holes in the ground and heaping the soil over their faces. What attracted the attention of all was a Numidian who was dragged alive from under a dead Roman lying across him. His ears and nose were torn, for the Roman, with hands too powerless to grab his weapon, had, in his mad rage, bit his enemy with his teeth, and while doing so expired. As soon as the killing was over at Cannae, Hannibal and his officers toured the battlefield. The Carthaginian warlord and his band of brothers were jubilant. They knew they had won a victory so great it would live on through the ages. Maharbal, the enterprising and ruthless commander of the Numidian horse, also saw a priceless opportunity. There's not a moment to lose, Hannibal, he urged. March on Rome now with the entire army. If you do so, I prophesy that in five days you'll be feasting on the Capitoline Hill. Follow me, I will go before you with the cavalry. Hannibal pondered Maharbal's words for a long moment. 
Then he shook his head and said, No, Maharbal, I commend your zeal, but I have other plans to ponder. This reply incensed Maharbal. So the gods do not give all of their gifts to one man, he scolded. You know how to win victory, Hannibal, but you do not know how to use it. What were Hannibal's plans? There were essentially two. First, Hannibal anticipated that the Roman Republic would now be willing to consider peace terms. The majority of ancient wars between civilized states, including the First Punic War, were ended by negotiation. The Romans had suffered three defeats, each greater and more shattering than the last. Any other state of the ancient world would have conceded the verdict of the battlefield and sued for peace. Hannibal dispatched a delegation to Rome consisting of ten captured Romans and one of his most trusted officers, Carthalo. The ten captives were to present Hannibal's offer to ransom all his Roman prisoners. Carthalo was to open negotiations for a peace treaty, should the Romans want one. Hannibal's other plan was the destruction of Rome's system of Italian alliances. Cannae was such a spectacular Carthaginian victory that surely some of the Italian states and communities would finally abandon their allegiance to Rome and join Hannibal. To further encourage any waverers, Hannibal ordered his Italian prisoners released without ransom, just as he had after the Trebia and Trasimene. While his plans unfolded, Hannibal mopped up. The day after the battle, the Carthaginians forced the surrender of the two Roman camps. They also rounded up Roman fugitives who had taken refuge in the town of Cannae. 12,000 Roman and Italian prisoners were added to the 4,500 taken on the battlefield. Hannibal gave an honorable burial to the consul Aemilius Paulus, whose corpse was found among the piles of enemy dead. Among the other eminent Roman victims were Servilius Geminus, two quaestors, and 29 military tribunes. Between a quarter and a third of the Roman Senate were killed or taken captive at Cannae, and all the rest had lost sons or other relatives. Finally, the Carthaginian warlord rested his army, which had itself suffered 5,100 dead in winning its greatest victory. When news of Cannae reached Rome, panic gripped the city. Wild rumors ran through the streets and among the seven hills that the Grand Army had been wiped out to a man. Even worse, Hannibal was said to be on his way. Mingled with the cries and shrieks of grief was the shout, Hannibal ad portas, Hannibal is at the gates. But the Roman Senate kept its nerve. Fabius Maximus Cunctator, the delayer, convinced his colleagues to ban all public mourning and post guards at all of the gates to prevent panicked flight from the city. Above all, scouts were sent along all of the roads to the south to seek any news of Hannibal and his army. When the scouts returned and reported that they had found no sign of Hannibal's army, the Senate's resolve strengthened, its hopes rose. At the urging of the Senate, the Roman Citizen Assembly, the Comitia Centuriata, elected two co-dictators. One of the dictators, Marcus Fabius Buteo, the same elderly senator who had delivered the Roman war ultimatum to Carthage in 218 BCE, oversaw the appointment of 177 notable Romans to replenish the depleted Senate. The other dictator, Marcus Junius Para, took charge of Roman recovery efforts. The Romans interpreted Cannae as divine punishment, so their first steps involved propitiating the gods. Two Vestal virgins were accused of bringing down divine disfavor on the Republic by having illicit affairs. They were condemned to death by being buried alive, although one avoided this awful fate by committing suicide. Their lovers were punished by flogging. 
One was flailed so severely that he expired. Most horrifically, the Romans resorted to human sacrifice. A Greek man and woman and a Gallic man and woman were seized and buried alive beneath the Forum Boarium, Rome's oldest market. The next steps involved rebuilding the Republic's army. In his three victories, Hannibal had killed 100,000 Romans and Italians. One out of seven of the men of military age counted in the 225 census were gone. These were appalling losses to suffer for any society in any age. But in the days after Cannae, the Senate received some encouraging news from the consul Gaius Terentius Varro. He had survived the rout of the Italian cavalry and the Numidian pursuit to find sanctuary in the town of Canusium. There, Varro had collected 10,000 survivors of Cannae, enough to form two legions. To supplement these forces, the dictator Pera energetically raised new troops. He recruited youths of 17 and purchased 8,000 slaves who were freed on condition they would fight for Rome. These new recruits were armed in part with weapons and armor, mainly Gallic, that had been displayed in Rome's temples as trophies of past victories. By such efforts, Pera raised four new legions by the end of the year 216. The Roman mood grew increasingly defiant. When the consul Varro returned to the city, he was given a hero's welcome and the public thanks of the Senate for not having despaired of the Republic. When word was received that the Carthaginian officer Carthalo and the delegation of Roman prisoners were approaching Rome, the Senate's response was immediate and unequivocal. One of dictator Pera's lictors, the special, fascus-bearing attendants and bodyguards of high-ranking Roman magistrates, went to Carthalo and ordered him to leave Roman territory before nightfall. As for the Roman prisoners, the Senate refused to pay their ransoms. Furthermore, it also forbade Roman citizens from raising the money privately. This hard-hearted decision by the Senate signaled the Republic's determination to fight on. It also condemned at least 16,500 Romans to be sold into slavery by Hannibal. The resolve of the Roman state remained unshaken even after the arrival of news of a second battlefield disaster. In Cisalpine Gaul, the army of two legions and allies, led by the praetor Posthumus Albinus, was ambushed in a forest and massacred by the Boii. The skull of Posthumus was covered in gold and turned into a ritual drinking cup for use by the tribal shamans. This disaster was the equivalent of another trazamine on top of Cannae. Why did the Roman Republic defy all of the accepted conventions of ancient warfare and fight on? I think there were three reasons. First, despite their tremendous losses, the Romans still had the manpower to raise new armies. By the end of 216, they had nine legions in the field near Rome, dictator Pera's four new legions, the two urban legions garrisoning the city itself, the legion of marines at Ostia, and the two Legionis Canensis, the legions of Cannae survivors. These nine legions represented the beginnings of the revival of Roman military strength. Second, even without hearing from Carthalo, the Romans knew Hannibal's terms would be harsh. Not only would the Romans have to give back Sardinia and Sicily to Carthage, they would also have to accept the loss of Roman territory, the breakup of their confederation of allies, and perhaps even a permanent Carthaginian military presence in Italy. This reversal of all the Republic's territorial achievements was simply unacceptable to the Roman aristocracy and people. Finally, negotiating peace was against Roman political culture. 
Virtually alone of all ancient civilizations, the Romans were committed to fighting a war until they or their enemies were completely defeated. Hannibal was surely taken aback by Rome's unexpected defiance, but he could console himself that his other plan, the breakup of the Roman Confederation, was bearing rich fruit. In the months after Cannae, much of southern Italy abandoned the Romans and joined him. The Samnites, the hill people of central and southern Italy, who had been such inveterate enemies of Rome, largely went over to him. Samnite warriors soon filled the ranks of his army. But Hannibal's greatest prize was Capua, then the second city of Italy and the dominant community of the rich region of Campania, Capua had enjoyed a limited form of Roman citizenship. Its defection gave Hannibal hope that Rome would soon be abandoned by even her oldest allies. Hannibal's new Italian allies gave him some important advantages. For the first time since leaving Cisalpine Gaul, he had a base of friendly territory in which he could supply his army and recruit new troops. Hannibal was soon able to field two armies in southern Italy, his own and a new force under his nephew Hanno that consisted mainly of Samnites and Brutians, another southern Italian people who had cast their lot with Carthage. However, his Italian allies also saddled him with burdens that would grow onerous over time. The Italians had not thrown off the Roman yoke only to take on a Carthaginian one. The treaties the Italians signed with Hannibal set strict limits on their financial and military support. More importantly, Hannibal bound himself to protect each of his Italian allies from Roman aggression. Hannibal gained even more diplomatic triumphs as a result of Cannae. Syracuse, the only remaining independent Sicilian city-state and an ally of Rome since the First Punic War, joined the Carthaginians. Syracuse gave the Carthaginians an important base in Sicily. Even more importantly, the powerful Hellenistic kingdom of Macedonia, led by its young and warlike king Philip V, made an alliance with Hannibal and declared war on Rome. The defection of southern Italy to the Carthaginians and the entry of foreign powers completely transformed the Second Punic War. Both Rome and Carthage had to develop new strategies and it was the Romans who adopted more quickly and ultimately far more successfully. Following Cannae, the Romans resurrected the delaying strategy of Fabius Maximus Cunctator. They refused to fight Hannibal in a pitched battle. Instead, the Romans shadowed and harassed the Carthaginian army. But the Romans also made three important improvements to the original Fabian strategy. First, they no longer treated the Fabian strategy as a temporary measure while they rebuilt their strength and confidence for another showdown against the Carthaginian warlord. Instead, the Fabian strategy was a permanent approach, employed year after year. Second, the Romans never again placed all of their legionary eggs in one basket. Instead of sending a single grand army against Hannibal, the Senate organized two or even more smaller field armies. That way, if Hannibal destroyed one army, the defeat would not again endanger the Republic. Third, and most importantly, the Romans aggressively targeted their turncoat former Italian allies for attack and reconquest. The improved Fabian strategy condemned Italy, particularly the South, to 13 years of unrelenting and devastating warfare. But the strategy prevented another Cannae, contained Hannibal, and, in the end, rendered him harmless. The Roman Republic also made full use of its manpower reserves. After Cannae, the Roman war effort only continued to grow. 
This was a remarkable achievement, given the Romans' casualties to date and their loss of southern Italy. In 213, the Romans fielded 23 legions and an equal number of allies, in all up to 200,000 men. The two urban legions remained at Rome. Two four-legion armies were in Apulia and Campania to watch and harass Hannibal. The two legionis canensis were fighting in Sicily. Smaller field armies were deployed in Cisalpine Gaul against the Gallic tribes and on the Adriatic coast to guard against any attempted Macedonian invasion. A final field army was in Spain, where the Scipio brothers were continuing their war against Hasdrubal Barca. On top of this strength on land, Rome was also maintaining a fleet of 120 kinkarems. But not only did the Romans have quantity, they also had quality. The legions were now kept in the field for year after year. As a result, the legionaries gained experience, skill, and confidence, becoming veterans equal to the best of Hannibal's men. For their increasingly effective legions, the Romans had better commanders. After the Trasimene disaster in 217, the Romans abandoned their practice of rarely electing the same man to multiple consulships. Instead, able leaders and generals were elected to several consulships. Fabius Maximus Cunctator, for example, was consul in 215, 214, and 209 BCE. Furthermore, the Romans also extended the imperium of proven commanders through the use of proconsulships and propraetorships. The Scipio brothers in Spain, for example, were continuously proconsuls after 217. As a result of these changes, the Romans soon had generals with experience and skills that outmatched all of their Carthaginian opponents except for Hannibal himself. As for Hannibal, he was at the height of his success after Cannae. He sent his brother Mago to Carthage with tidings of his victorious Italian campaign. Mago appeared before the Adirim, the Carthaginian Senate, and before the astonished Mighty Ones poured out sacks containing hundreds of gold rings taken from dead and captured Roman aristocrats. Mago Barca then declared that Hannibal must be significantly reinforced so that he could finish off Rome. Livy writes that Carthaginian political enemies of Hannibal prevented reinforcements from reaching him in Italy. But Livy's claim is utterly dubious. Polybius makes clear that Hannibal was in total control of Carthage. The Barsids dominated the government of the Carthaginian Republic. Hannibal's relatives and friends were in command of all of Carthage's armies and fleets. Blame for the failures of Carthaginian strategy after Cannae must therefore rest with Hannibal. First among these failures was allowing the Romans to seize the initiative. Instead of taking the fight to their weakened enemies and finishing them off, the Carthaginians reacted to Roman moves. In 215, Mago assembled 12,000 foot, 1,500 horse, and 20 elephants to take to Hannibal in Italy. But Mago and his entire army were diverted to Spain to shore up the deteriorating Carthaginian position there. Only a separate force of 4,000 Numidians and 40 elephants reached Hannibal by sea. Subsequent years saw this pattern repeated again and again. The Carthaginians raised impressive forces, numerically at least equal to the Romans, yet they scattered them to Spain, Sicily, and Sardinia in reaction to Roman offensives. Italy, the only theater where the Carthaginians could have won the war, was starved of reinforcements. The Numidians and elephants of 215 were the only troops that ever reached Hannibal from Carthage or Spain. 
Scatterization accurately describes Hannibal's strategic approach to the Second Punic War after Cannae. In Italy itself, Hannibal never found an effective answer to the Romans' new Fabian strategy. The Carthaginian warlord still sought to bring the Romans to battle. He remained convinced that one more smashing victory would finally force his enemies to the negotiating table or convince the last of the Italian allies to abandon Rome. Hannibal remained invincible on the battlefield. In 212 and 210, he destroyed two more Roman armies outside Herdonia. In both battles, he was in top form, employing all his old tricks of rapid movement, surprise attacks, and envelopment. In 208, he ambushed both consuls in a skirmish at Venusia. Marcus Claudius Marcellus, one of the most able Roman generals, was killed outright, while his colleague, Titus Quinctius Crispinus, was fatally wounded. For the first time in Roman history, both consuls had been killed in action. Yet the Romans were able to shrug off these defeats. They always had more armies to send against Hannibal, and they doggedly persevered with the Fabian strategy. As a result, Hannibal could never land the knockout blow he so badly desired. Most importantly, the Romans forced the Carthaginians to defend their Italian allies, which invariably involved siege warfare, the branch of war in which Hannibal was weakest. Hannibal frenetically crisscrossed southern Italy, trying to defend every threatened ally. But to no avail. The Romans attacked the Italian turncoats wherever Hannibal was not present. Slowly, steadily, Rome reconquered southern Italy. The Roman siege of Capua in 212-211 demonstrated just how much the balance of the war in Italy was turning against Hannibal. The Romans besieged the city with both consular armies and a third army led by the praetor Gaius Claudius Nero, one of the new generation of able Roman commanders. Hannibal responded first by trying to draw the enemy from Capua by pouncing on nearby Roman armies. He destroyed a large force of Roman irregulars, then won his first battle of Herdonia. But the Romans refused to take the bait and only tightened their grip on Capua. Early in 211, Hannibal launched a furious assault on the siege lines and almost broke through to the city, but was repelled. Then the Carthaginian warlord put together a task force of his best troops and dashed northwards. For the first and only time in his 15-year Italian odyssey, Hannibal was marching on Rome. He hoped that the Romans at Capua would chase after him and he could bring them to battle near the enemy capital. But the Romans saw through his ruse. They had four legions at Rome, led by the year's consuls. This army marched out of the city and offered battle. Hannibal realized that his task force was badly outnumbered. He withdrew deep into southern Italy. Soon after, Capua fell. The Romans made the city an example to all the rebel Italians. Capuan aristocrats were enslaved, and ordinary citizens ordered to leave Capua to be resettled elsewhere. The legionaries thoroughly sacked Capua, taking an immense haul of war booty. For all of the successes of the Fabian strategy, the Romans could only contain Hannibal, not defeat him. Punic warlord remained on the loose and dangerous. Yet outside Italy, on other fronts of the sprawling Second Punic War, the Romans won overwhelming victories. They drove the Carthaginians from Sardinia. In Sicily, the Romans defeated the Carthaginian expeditionary forces, then besieged and took Syracuse in 212. One of the victims of the siege was the great Greek scientist Archimedes, killed by an impatient Roman soldier while he sketched geometric figures in the dust. From the greatest and wealthiest Greek city-state in Sicily, the Romans carted away an enormous amount of booty. 
in the Balkans, Roman legions and fleets easily defeated King Philip V of Macedonia, who, far from being a worthy heir to Alexander the Great, was exposed as an inept and timid war leader. By 205 BCE, the Macedonians had made peace with the Romans. The Roman Senate came to conclude that while Hannibal remained the most dangerous enemy, the war in Italy had become a stalemated sideshow. After 208, Roman commanders were under orders to contain Hannibal and prevent him from leaving Italy. The decisive theater of the Second Punic War was Spain. Since Hamilcar Barca's arrival in the wake of the First Punic War, Spain was the real foundation of Carthaginian power, an incomparable source of wealth and formidable fighting men. Since 218 BCE, the Romans under the Scipio brothers had fought against Hasdrubal Barca for mastery of the Iberian Peninsula. The Scipio brothers were Rome's most able commanders of the early years of the war, while Hannibal's younger brother proved competent at best. The war in Spain seesawed until 211, when Hasdrubal managed to inflict two crushing defeats on the Scipios and managed to kill them both. The Senate of Rome responded to these setbacks by dispatching to Spain two fresh legions under the command of Publius Cornelius Scipio the Younger. We last saw the younger Scipio surviving his fourth Hannibalic massacre at Cannae. His survival proved fortitious for Rome and disastrous for Carthage, for the young Scipio was one of the greatest of all Roman generals. To history, he is better known as Scipio Africanus. Scipio Africanus was Hannibal's match in operational agility and tactical ingenuity. In his hands, the Roman legions became truly devastating weapons of war. Instead of resorting to the traditional two-way frontal attack, Scipio's legions were capable of elaborate maneuvers. As soon as he arrived in Spain in 210 BCE, Scipio Africanus demonstrated his mastery. He captured New Carthage, the capital of the Barcas, by daring coup, then went on to crush Hasdrubal Barca at the Battle of Baikula. Then, in 206 BCE, in a climactic battle at Olypa, Scipio Africanus launched his legions in an ingenious flanking attack that destroyed the last Carthaginian field army in Iberia. By the end of 206 BCE, Spain was in Roman hands. Hannibal's only chance to turn the tide of the Second Punic War was to receive substantial reinforcements that would reinvigorate his army and allow him to seek another Cannae. In 208, following his defeat at Scipio Africanus's hands at Baikula, Hasdrubal Barca at last left Spain for Italy. He retraced Hannibal's route across Gaul and over the Alps. But in northern Italy, Hasdrubal was confronted by the consul Marcus Livius with a force of four legions. Meanwhile, Hannibal remained blocked in southern Italy, prevented from rendezvousing with his brother by the army of the other consul, Gaius Claudius Nero. The Romans were now so confident they had the measure of Hannibal that Nero decided to take 7,000 of his best troops and execute a lightning march north to join Livius. The two consuls then proceeded to destroy Hasdrubal's army at the Battle of the Metaurus River. Hannibal only learned of the defeat when the Romans flung Hasdrubal's severed head over the ramparts of his camp. Hannibal and Hasdrubal's youngest brother, Mago Barca, was still alive. In 205 BCE, Mago gathered an army of mercenaries and elephants in Africa and shipped them to Italy. But instead of going to the south and joining Hannibal, Mago landed in Liguria in the far northwestern corner of Italy. This decision is something of a head-scratcher. Liguria was in rebellion against Rome, and the Ligurians swelled the ranks of Mago's army. 
In addition, Hannibal may have been hoping that his brother would open another front in Italy, allowing the Carthaginians to threaten Rome from two directions. If these were indeed Hannibal's calculations, they amounted to another serious strategic mistake. For Mago Barca was not a patch on Hannibal in terms of generalship. He allowed himself to be shut in Liguria for two years. When he finally did try to break out, the Romans converged on him with two field armies. The Romans defeated Mago at a battle on Insubrian territory in Cisalpine Gaul and drove him back into his Ligurian fastness. This defeat extinguished Hannibal's last flickering hope to revive his Italian campaign. The Carthaginian warlord and his army were now confined to Brutium in the far south of Italy. The stage was now set for the final act of the Second Punic War. Late in 206 BCE, fresh from his triumphs in Spain, Scipio Africanus proposed to the Roman Senate an invasion of Carthage's home territories. His proposal ran into stiff opposition from Fabius Maximus Cunctator, who regarded an invasion of Libya a dangerous gamble while Hannibal remained on the loose in southern Italy. Scipio outmaneuvered the Delaire by taking his plans directly to the Roman citizens in the Comitia Centuriata. Scipio Africanus was assigned to take command in Sicily, the necessary stepping stone for an invasion of Punic North Africa. In a parting shot, Scipio's opponents managed to impose one final restriction on him. He was not allowed to recruit new legions. Once on Sicily, Scipio Africanus had to improvise an army consisting of 7,000 Romans who had volunteered to join him, and the two Legionis Canensis, the legions made up of survivors of Cannae. The Cannae veterans had been fighting in Sicily on the Senate's orders since 216 BCE. In 204 BCE, Scipio invaded Africa. He first defeated Carthage's home army. Africanus then scored an equally important diplomatic victory by securing the allegiance of Massinissa, who had just recently united the Numidian tribes into a single kingdom. Massinissa provided Scipio with a cavalry arm better than anything the Carthaginians still possessed and the Carthaginians had very little left. The fall of Spain had robbed Carthage of most of its financial and military resources. Now, thanks to Scipio, Libya and Numidia were gone. The only army left was Hannibal's in Italy, so the government of Carthage ordered Hannibal home. The great warlord landed in Africa in 203 BCE. He had not seen Carthage for 34 years. With him, Hannibal brought 13,000 veterans. Very few of them were Africans, Spaniards, and Gauls from the glory days of Cannae. Most were now Samnites, Brutians, and other Italian allies. However, they were just as proficient, experienced, and dedicated to Hannibal as the old guard had ever been. To this matchless corps of veterans, Hannibal added new Libyan and even Carthaginian citizen levies, as well as whatever mercenaries remained. In 202 BCE, Hannibal led his motley army to face Scipio and his legions. The confrontation of the two great captains took place at Zama, a location which has never been definitively identified, but it was some way south of Carthage. In the battle that followed, neither commander displayed his trademark genius. Zama was a brutal slugfest. But at the end of the day, Scipio and the Cannae survivors exacted their revenge against Hannibal. The valiant veterans of Hannibal were encircled by Roman legionaries and cavalry and went down fighting. Hannibal fled and lived. The peace terms that ended the Second Punic War were dictated to Carthage by the victorious Scipio Africanus. His nickname was awarded to him as part of the triumph held in Rome to celebrate Zama. 
The terms reduced Carthage to its origins, a city-state on the North African shore. Carthage also had to pay a huge war indemnity to the Romans. Finally, the Carthaginians could not make war without Roman permission. Perhaps unexpectedly for the Romans, Carthage prospered. Its traditional economic strengths of extraordinarily fecund agriculture and profitable commercial links came to the city's rescue. Moreover, in 196 BCE, Hannibal won election as Sufet. He proved to be an even more effective politician than warlord. In a single year, he reformed the Carthaginian Republic and purged corrupt state officials. But then his enemies in Carthage conspired with Rome to drive him into exile. In Rome, Hannibal was vigorously defended by Scipio Africanus, but his pleas could not move a Senate that could never forget how close Hannibal came to destroying the Republic. Rome also neither forgot nor forgave Carthage. One of the greatest Roman statesmen, Cato the Elder, ended every speech in the Senate on any subject whatsoever with the cry, Caterum Censeo, Carthaginem esse delendam. Moreover, I advise that Carthage must be destroyed. Or more succinctly, Carthago delenda est, Carthage must be destroyed. Finally, in 149 BCE, the Romans exploited a quarrel between Carthage and the Numidians to declare war. The Third Punic War was not at all comparable to the first two conflicts. Roman strength was now overwhelming. Carthage was besieged by a Roman army commanded by Scipio Aemilianus, adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus and the patron of Polybius. Despite tenacious, desperate resistance, the Romans took Carthage and utterly destroyed it. Rome's revenge for Cannae was complete, for Rome had already dealt with Hannibal. After being forced into exile, Hannibal wandered as a mercenary captain among the Hellenistic kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. The Romans pursued him relentlessly. In 182 BCE, they at last caught up to him in Bithynia, which is now in Turkey. Rather than be taken by Roman agents, Hannibal took poison. Hannibal's tragedy is that he came so tantalizingly close to defeating Rome and thus changing the course of history. I've dwelt on Hannibal's failures as Carthage's commander-in-chief in the years after Cannae, yet I think his truly fatal miscalculations came earlier. As Dexter Hoyos, the leading historian today of Carthage and the Punic Wars, points out, Perhaps the most regularly debated of all Hannibalic questions is whether he was right not to march on Rome after Cannae or even earlier. Most modern commenters have rushed to the defense of Hannibal's decision. They point out a number of reasons. Rome was heavily fortified. The Romans could have easily raised new forces that would have overwhelmed Hannibal. The Punic army had no siege equipment, had suffered heavy casualties at Cannae, and needed to recuperate. And lastly, southern Italy was already showing signs of changing sides. One of Hannibal's few critics was Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, Britain's most famous soldier of the Second World War, but a general not known for boldness nor daring. I think that Hannibal's decision not to march on Rome after Cannae threw away his best opportunity to win the Second Punic War. Rome was stricken by panic after Cannae, the defensive forces close at hand, mounting to the two urban legions, the Legion of Marines at Ostia, and perhaps the survivors of Cannae would hardly have been a match for Hannibal's victorious veterans. While Hannibal was notoriously weak in siege warfare, he actually had no need to formally beleaguer and storm the city. 
All he needed to do was blockade Rome, cut off its access to the Tiber, and wait for its massive population to starve, which could have happened in a matter of weeks, or at most months. For all of the Roman Senate's resolve, it would have found it impossible to raise and command new forces while trapped within Rome's walls. Finally, with Rome itself directly threatened by Hannibal, even more of the Italian allies, including the indispensable core of Latin states and communities, might have reconsidered their allegiance to the Roman Confederation. In fact, these conditions would have pertained not just after Cannae. They would have equally applied a year previously following Lake Trasimene. So Hannibal threw away not one, but two chances to win the war at a stroke. Maharbal peerless and ruthless captain of the Numidian cavalry, had advised Hannibal on both occasions to march on Rome. So perhaps, as Hannibal lay dying from his fatal draft, the shade of Maharbal came to him and whispered the truth. So the gods do not give all of their gifts to one man. You know how to win victory, Hannibal, but you do not know how to use it. This concludes Can I, Episode 2 of the Great Battles in History podcast. My name is Daryl D., and I would like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. As always, I would like to acknowledge the support of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies. Particular thanks go to Consul Kevin Spooner Maximus, the new director of the center and to Tribune's Matthew Morden, Matt Baker, Eric Story, and Kyle Falcon. The next episode of the podcast will be on the Battle of Hattin. I hope you'll join me.